Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll talk about the trials and tribulations of trying to do 5.1 from NAB. And generally, what we're working on here. So it's, we're going to, you know, we don't have it all figured out yet, but we're we're getting close. So anyway, so stay tuned for that um, coming up in the, in the second hour. We'll talk about our approach and uh, what where we are so far. And um, I am hearing myself talk back here. So uh, let's see here. Uh, quit the comms. Sorry. There is adjustment to be made on your Korg nanocontroller, Alex? Hearing yourself with a second delay is the worst thing to try to get through. I, no, there's uh, somewhere, somewhere I'm hearing my, I apologize for everyone listening to me trying to turn things off and figure out why I'm hearing myself. Um, just quitting everything. You know, something was playing back. I don't know exactly what it was. So apologize for that. Um, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we got? First one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asked, mid-journey for Zoom backgrounds. How do I prompt for a clear center screen? I would like any objects right and left justified. Thanks. And uh, sorry, I'm a little discombobulated. I quit everything I had to try to figure out why. There we go. I John think John Preto had his hand raised. I, I don't know of any specific command to do that inside of Midjourney. Maybe Alex has some hints on that. This is one of the reasons why I think Adobe has an advantage, although their models won't be as as good as Midjourney. You're going to have more control inside of Photoshop. I'm I'm on the Firefly Discord now, and they have a every so often they have a meeting. They had one last week, and these types of questions specifically came up. And then I put in a question about rendering into layers and and the guy just shook his head yes he didn't say anything he just shook his head yes so i i suspect to see all kinds of controls like this directly into photoshop and uh, it's going to be an interesting battle but i, I don't know maybe alex has more about mid-journey no no it's a lot of times what it what it hap what you can say is to have this thing on the right or on the left or to the side and a lot of times the way I handle that is iteration. I just do a lot of them. And then I start picking ones that that, that start to get closer to what I'm looking for. Uh, so so it's not, I, I have to say that I usually get what I look at from just brute force. You know, like I, you know, I'll say things, this is to the right and this is to the left. There's a field to the right and a and a door to the, you know, on the left. And, and there's a, you know, there, that kind of thing. And a lot of times it'll start to frame those things up. But sometimes you, the one thing that, Mid-journey, so the difference, I don't know, my experience of difference between Dolly and mid-journey is Dolly does a pretty good job right out of the gate, but mid-journey is it, all about iteration. So you're going to do, you know, if I want an image, I'll produce 200 of them and get and, and slowly find my way to it. And I'm not afraid of saying none of those first four are what I wanted, just do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, until I start figuring out what, you know, I start seeing what I'm looking for, or I change my prompts to try to figure it, you know, to... You know, but you're you're really kind of negotiating with a, with a, you know, uh, uh, you know, with a crazy dog. This <laughs> like is trying to get it to go out the door. You know, like you're just like the door. It's just like the dog with the zoomies, and you're trying to get it to go out the door. And you're just like, okay, come over here, come over here, do this, do this. And so that's what that's what you're um, that's what you're kind of working on when you're doing mid mid journey. So as soon as you embrace that, you're okay. Um, but I, I do think, to John's point, this is the big thing that's going to happen next. You're going to see a lot more directive, uh, whether it's in 3D. There's already, you know, I, I don't know if people have seen some of the stuff that's been built into Blender. 
Uh, I think we're going to see more of that in most of the 3D apps where it's give me a bunch of spheres, give me a bunch of these things, randomly disperse them, randomly rotate them, put the stuff out. Those kinds of things take a lot of time to do with, you know, by hand and being able to just tell it to what to do, I think is going to be pretty interesting. And so framing and objects and so on and so forth, I think we're, you know, in the next two years, it'll be pretty exciting when it comes to composing things and it will start, it knows where those things are. I mean, kind of, it kind of knows where those things are in as objects. And so being able to render in layers, I think is, and in objects down the road, I think is going to make, is going to happen. So it's going to be really interesting. Uh, next question. Jason Robert Shaw, Sarasota, Florida. Recently, and he notes the past year, when plugging a MacBook into a conference or hotel HDMI via a dongle, no signal is detected. Different dongles, different Macs, different venues, but the same results. And he notes it's not just him. Uh, what could be happening? And all the Macs, he also notes, have been updated. Good, Courtney. Ah, uh, you made the mistake of choosing Apple hardware. No, I'm just kidding. The uh, <laughs> the probably the problem is probably is the problem with the hotel uh, conference has some old outdated hardware that was looking for broadcast uh, 1080i, and the Macs may not output i. They'll put or probably put out 60p or 30p, uh, and that may be what's causing the. Uh, uh, the hotel to reject it or not see the signal because it's looking for a specific vertical frequency, which it's not getting out of the computers or the computers are not delivering uh, via that uh, EDID request. That's the only thing I can think of. It depends on what you're plugging into. This is why MDHX is the tool that everyone should carry around with them when plugging into other people's uh, HDMI inputts. Yeah, that's the decimator, MDHX. MDAHX. We all have them laying around. Uh, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I was really going to say the same thing. You know, our experience was post-COVID, most of the sort of medium to small conference hotels either laid off their staff or they did nothing to service that equipment. And it, the parts may be missing. It may not work. There may be people there who don't know what it works. You have got to turn up the week before, two weeks before. You've got to think about bringing your own equipment. You've got to assume unless it's a very sophisticated conference center. And even then, what they've got won't work. Yeah, the, the one thing I will say is be very careful about the dongles. Uh, the dongles are pretty, um, uh, both with, especially with Lightning, but definitely with USB-C. I only buy Apple ones now because the, all the other ones have some little chips in them that do a lot of different things that don't seem to work very well. So, so I, uh, you know, and I know that Apple, there's an Apple tax to buy and then they're a little bit more expensive for less features. But uh, I do find that the Uni cables that I have, I have USB-C to Uni or to, to UNI, USB-C to HDMI have worked really good, really well for me. And, and that, that's something that I would take a look at. I have a lot of those cables that all seem to be stable, but many of the converter cables that I work or, and, and dongles have just not been stable. And when I moved to an Apple branded one, a lot of things work that didn't work before. Go ahead, Bill. And also, don't forget, there's been a lot of talk recently about the security potential compromises of plugging into USB or some other port that you don't know. I mean, I think if you're in a, a, a nice hotel or an, an international chain, you're probably reasonably safe. But if you get down into the squirrelier hotels, for lack of a better term, uh, just plugging in, some people can, that can be a security issue. So be aware of that. And a lot of the HDMI uh, inputs at your hotel room aren't connected to anything. 
Like I've, I've done that where I plugged it and nothing happened. I looked underneath. There was no wires. At some point, someone, you know, someone installed it when they built the room up, but there's nothing, there's nothing actually there. So make sure to check the other side of that as well. Um, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. When would you use Shoot versus EpoCam, Camo, or Filmic Pro? Good guy. Yeah, it depends on how you want to bring footage into a laptop, for instance, on the road. Um, if you're using a lightning cable on an iPhone, then that's Epicam, uh, Camar, both those hardwired uh, paid for apps. Uh, Shoot is also a paid for app. It adds NDI on top of just being able to cable it. So again, we're bringing a web, we're making our phone into a webcam. Filmic Pro is different. That one you can actually record. So if, if you want to record, not just ingest uh, a camera into your system, um, Tony Mobley uses um, Filmic Pro to ingest his iPhone in, but he's using the clean HDMI out. So one of the benefits of Filmic Pro is that you can get a higher quality through an ATEM by using um, the clean HDMI uh, on that. Uh, but for recording, you can record in ProRes, which is pretty cool with Filmic Pro. You also get tons of fine tuning, uh, white balance, uh, selective focus. Uh, there's a lot of control with Filmic Pro, so I prefer that to just using the regular uh, built-in camera app on the iPhone. Yeah, and, I, and uh, for me, it's just Shooter Filmic Pro. Like, I, I, if I'm going to be doing something hard, I'm going to do it with Filmic Pro. If I, I like the being able to have a little telestrator on on shoot, um, and it works well for live stuff. So I don't, I, you know, those those are the two that I go back and forth with. Um, next question. Brett Ballou in Appleton, Wisconsin. Between After Effects and Motion, which motion graphics app provides a better workflow or tighter integration when migrating to DaVinci Resolve? Pros and cons for each would be helpful. Fusion. Fusion is the right answer. So if you're going to, for the most part, if you're going to go, if you're going to be doing a lot of graphics and even motion graphics, I would really look at understanding how Fusion works inside of Resolve. That's the best way to integrate it. Now, now you may find that there are creature comforts in each one of those that you may make sense. Um, you know, Fusion is a, it, Fusion takes a little bit to learn. They're all very different because um, motion is a behavior-based system. So you're going to tell it what you want it to do and have it you know, it, it tends to want to go that direction. Uh, After Effects is a layer-based system and Fusion is a nodal-based system. And they're all, so they all work in very different ways as far as how they kind of manage those processes. But if you're really trying to get a tight integration, you, you really should at least take the lessons in Fusion because it's really powerful. Uh, you know, as far as built-in, I've done a couple things now in it. And, and, I, you know, and, and if I'm going to do something and I know I'm going to be in Resolve, I tend to try to figure out how to do it in Fusion first rather than trying to have something that's going to render out and then I'm going to try to import it and then I'm going to do something else. I'd rather try to do it there now. I still go back to motion for a bunch of stuff that's behavioral based because it's much faster <laughs> to do it that way. Uh, I, I haven't um, I haven't used After Effects in a project for a couple of years now. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, you know, After Effects is the 10,000-pound gorilla out in, I know, in media and marketing and advertising and everything else. A lot of people use it. And it's a brilliant program. It has gotten pretty big and weighty over the course of time. And I think there are a lot of when, – when you get that big uh, user base – they can be kind of resistant to change. Uh, so I'm not expecting After Effects to, to become anything other than it is right now, ever, probably in its history. I'm not saying they won't develop additions to it, but it's just so many people depending on so many parts of, of After Effects because it's been so embedded that it's probably not going to do anything really radical that might 
mess up its existing market. Motion's a kind of a different thing. If you're on Max, Motion is incredibly brilliant. It is a lighter footprint. It doesn't do all the things that After Effects does, but the things that it does particularly well, and in my mind, that is integrating graphics into a video editor's workflow if you're using Final Cut. It, it's just seamless, smooth, and incredibly quickly. And you think, oh, it's $49. Can it be that complicated or sophisticated? And the answer is, yeah, it really can be. There's a gazillion things behind the menus in motion for somebody who's really talented to be able to express their will. They're both great programs, and, and they both can output graphics that you can bring in to resolve and use. It just depends on whether you want to get into the, the huge, giant ecosystem and be more compatible with more outside people, or whether you have a workflow that's working beautifully inside the Apple ecosystem. And if so, you really need to be in motion because it's really stunning. Yeah, I mean, all of them are very powerful. And, and you know, while I haven't needed to use After Effects for, for a while, it's just the type of work that I do. I, I started using After Effects when it was still called COSA. <laughs> so, so it was COSA effects, you know, so that was a long time ago. And, and, I, uh, and I used it for some big feature films um, to composite things together. And so, and, and, I, and I used it pretty heavily. I, I have to admit that it's mostly my resistance to paying for the subscription that keeps me out of After Effects. So I pay for Photoshop. I pay my $10 a month or whatever, but... I've been resistant to paying for the, because After Effects, you can't pay like 20 bucks a month. It's like the whole thing. Like you have to get everything to get After Effects. And I felt like, uh, I, I look at it and I go, well, I'm not using it often enough. That's the problem that I with these subscription services. When the number gets high enough, you're like, I'm not using it often enough to make it worth that subscription. And so, um, so I haven't, so I've kind of avoided it. And, but I think that that's, and so I've found my way to use, using the other things. I will say that, Emotion is probably the best ROI of any of any of any graphics programming in existence. It's just except for maybe Keynote, Keynote, but but um, that's an infinite ROI. Uh, but uh, but I think that Motion is an incredible value, and I will say that anybody not paying attention to what what's happening with Resolve is missing out. I I they just have so many more engineers than everybody else. Like you can just tell, like there's just a lot more. The development is faster on Resolve by an order of magnitude than all the other companies, and so. Um, so that's why I keep on learning, you know, kind of moving forward and, and learning Resolve just to make sure I can take advantage of some of those things when I need them. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. The other day, the panel showed a great looking wiring diagram of the office hours video flow. In what program was that created? Yeah, that that was great. I think that was Kevin's outline of how he has it flowed out. And, and internally at 090, we do all of the stuff in OmniGraffle. Um, you know, we're not technical enough to do it in AutoCAD. We just don't need AutoCAD to do that. It, when you do really, really big wiring diagrams, most of those, like if you're looking at a big facility, almost all of those are done in AutoCAD. Um, and they have, there's a bunch of tools that AutoCAD has built in that makes it easier. Um, and so those, those things are, are really, you know, um, set up, but, but the, uh, uh, but for us, and we've been building these wiring diagrams for a decade, all in OmniGraffle. And so it's hard for us to get, you know, I think that the, um, the H2R stuff is really good. And, and I think that, you know, for some of the kits, it would make sense when we do the amount of flow that we, that we do for some of our, our kits, it makes it a little easier to use OmniGraffle and they've been pretty responsive <laughs> for a while. We were sending them long lists of things that it needed to do to build our wiring diagrams. And after a couple of versions, we ended up with, um, a lot of stuff that was really useful for us. And so, so that's what we build it in. Um, next question. 
Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, CBS Sports launched the Galazzo Network with an all-cloud infrastructure based around the Grass Valley AMPP platform on Amazon Web Services. Not only is the infrastructure on the cloud, all operators can work remotely. Will this be where all broadcasters go? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, it could. This is a 24-hour uh, sports network that's all soccer all the time. Uh, and I would imagine for a network operations center, you could do it that way. Of course, since you're covering soccer, you know, the directors and the camera operators obviously have to be at the events. The directors probably can't be working remotely because the latency would drive them nuts. And uh, But for a network operations center where basically it's a matter of scheduling and all the switching is controlled on uh, precise time, uh, you know, atomic time across the network, uh, then it would be fine. You just schedule, okay, at twelve at twelve oh one, we're going to switch to this venue and play, you know, and start this game, connect to this game. So where you're doing network operations, it'd be perfect for that. Uh, then people, the operators, could work from home because it's mainly a, a matter of, of scheduling and the precise timing of the switching and so on is is handled by the clock, not necessarily by the action on the screen. So. Uh, there, that network is probably going to be in the cloud, but the uh, the individual venues are still going to be uh, conventional setups with trucks, I imagine. But I'm not there. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are trying to figure this out. You know, I think COVID accelerated this by about a decade, and so a lot of people were like, "Well, we can, we can get through these things, and let's figure out." And and I think that uh, I I think it's pretty interesting to see. I, I do think that we will see what you'll probably see is smaller sports going down a path and then they build up. There's too much money in the really big sports to to to, to change the pipeline quickly. But even in big sports, they're they're doing more remote. So if you look at a at a football game, a, you know, big football game in the United States, you know, some of the operators are off site now. Um, and that's happening more and more often. And so they're they're doing it a little bit slower, but I think that you'll see this being experimented with smaller venue games, college games. That's where a lot of times uh, AAA, you know, um, local local stuff is the, the kind of thing that they start with. And that's just so they can ring it out without taking any real risk. Um, I do think you're going to see a lot more in the cloud. I mean, I, I think that, and and what's really good for us is that when companies like CBS Sports, you know, and Grass Valley and everything else are playing in the cloud, they're sorting out a bunch of issues that a lot of us are still trying to figure out. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I mean, it, once you get the stability of the encodes coming up, whether it be via SRT or JPEG 2000, something like that, uh, that's, the, that's the hard part is, is getting 10-bit up to the cloud and then being able to turn it back around. When people see the, the cost difference, I mean, for me to go up to AWS and get a, a GPU-based instance for a buck twenty-five an hour and throw vMix uh, $60 a month on it and be able to ingest high-quality footage, um, send it up via SRT from an encoder, it's pretty amazing. I mean, to be able to do what we can, we can compete with these guys uh, for cheap. And so as we see that democratization of video switching in the cloud and remote collaboration, I mean, Greg Gibson is doing it with with a, a couple guys uh, that we've all collaborated and met through office hours and big shows are, are occurring. I mean, he's doing a show almost every day with people from the West Indies and um, with comms, it's just like they're there. It, it's it's switching in the cloud and it's very inexpensive. So I, it definitely is the future. I, I, I saw some of the Grass Valley demos um, online from IBC and it, it, 
it makes sense now why Andrew Cross went over there. There, there's big stuff happening. So, but the biggest part is getting the footage up there. So the the encoders and throwing stuff around, and it's called CDI. So getting the stuff up low latency, high quality is is the challenge, and we'll see a lot of those encoders uh, at NAB. Yeah, yeah, and I think SRT is a big piece of that. Uh, also, excess JPEG excess is something a lot of people talk about because the latency is a bit lower to write the frames, um, and then uh, twenty one ten to the cloud. Even I think we're going to see some more movement uh, next week on. So I think that there's a lot of lot of movement in this area, and I do think again, I do think it's the future. I just don't know exactly how fast it'll take to get there. So um, especially on the higher end uh, solutions. Uh, next question. David Brady in New York City is up next. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Who are your favorite video influencers? And is anyone going about video influencing all wrong? Good, Nigel. So I tried to work out what we mean by video influencers. So I'm going to assume here we're talking about uh, people on YouTube or other sources of video footage that influence my purchasing. I suspect I am looking at the biggest video influencer of my life, which is Office Hours. My wife would still like to know the name of the person who sent me the link to the first show I watched because <laughs> that was a very expensive URL. Um, and, and actually, I think this has been the most effective way because it's iterative, it's step-by-step. Step. I actually don't... There are lots of people I watch on things like YouTube, MK, PhD, all of their here to record stuff. I don't find they drive my purchases. I find they educate me and put me through a process to drive. I think mostly people like... Uh, there's a guy called Drew Brasher that does X32 stuff who I think is great. But I got the X32 and I had to learn to use it. I don't think I'm terribly influenced by people wearing a shirt, um, you know, driving a car, any of those things. But maybe it's so good and I just don't know it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I, the usual suspects, uh, Potato Jet, which is kind of a funny name, a funny guy. Uh, he reviews a lot of camera equipment, drones, etc. Uh, MKB, uh, Marcus Brownlee, uh, is always good. Gerald Undone is uh, good. Uh, Doug Johnson for video equipment for like the ATEM and switchers and uh, uh, remote, you know, corporate and small sports broadcast. Uh, uh, Doug Johnson does some good explainers on TV. I don't know if it influences my purchasing, but it uh, it, it increases my knowledge amongst all the things. And and for many computers like the uh, Melee, uh, uh, ETA Prime is a guy I watch. He reviews a lot of these small form factor computers, which affects which you know affects my bank account uh, quite a bit. Next question. David Brady, New York City. Sorry, uh, oh no, he just says, I got an Obspot Tiny 4K and flashed it for OSC. What are the panelists' thoughts? Can this camera be driven by, ways of, by way of Zoom OSC via chat? And is there any use in Zoom room systems? You know, we're really interested in it. I'm glad you got one now. So I have to order one. I think I, I went up to order one when it first came out and it was like back ordered by a lot. So I, I kind of just went, well, I'll, I'll wait for a little bit, buy one. But we're really interested in seeing it. I, I decided we were going to put some pressure on on the Insta360, but I decided I'd like to see the Obspot first. <laughs> so, so I'd like to have it in my office. And so we're, we're going to, um, I, I'm going to try to order one now, now that I know that they're actually moving along. 
and uh, and we'll take a look at it. We'll see what we can do. It should be able to anything that's talking OSC should be able to talk to it according to how it how it lays it out. So that could be everything from uh, you know I mean the, anything that you know, Isadora, um, but also uh, Zoom OSC probably could do it. I, I think that via chat. I think the problem really is is like what does that mean? I guess in chat you could give it positions and tell it go here, go here, go here. But I'm really interested to see what the implementation is of, of OSC. So expect a bunch of us to start playing with that soon to see what it looks like and also put up. I'm, I am going to put it up against some charts just to take a look at in the same frame as the as the um, as the Insta360. You know, what kind of solution are we getting? I do think that anybody going to NAB should go to the Insta360 and at least informally talk about the fact that they don't have any way to they don't have any API. <laughs> so that, that'd be good. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Telos is introducing Omnia Forza, an AES 67 based software broadcast audio processor in a Docker container. What niche could you see for it versus hardware processing? And he's got a link to the unit. You know, I think that we, it looks really, I mean, here's, here's what I guess I would say is that Telos tends to be a, uh, a very solid uh, system. Um, and it is, uh, and so we, you know, they tend to put things together that, that look really good. So I have some, you know, I, I have some idea that it's probably going to be a pretty powerful system. Uh, latency always becomes, you know, issue, issue when you worry about stability and IO, you know, those are the kind of things that we pay a lot of attention to, but I think that it, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like. We can get Telos on to talk about it too. So if someone puts it into the second hour suggestions, I, I know a lot of people. <laughs> so so we can. I don't think that I don't. I don't think it'd be hard to get them to come and demo it for us. So I think that I would probably wait for that. Uh, just quick reminder that of course that uh, you can ask your questions at any time. So you can ask questions into Makana. Uh, the uh, you, you as the producers, as the viewers, uh, decide what we talk about and when we talk about it. So make sure to throw those questions in as well as vote on those questions in Makana. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, Alex, do you use any of the stencils in OmniGraffle? If so, which are the most useful to you? Uh, I have a, a rough collection of my own stencils. I don't use any of the stencils that are built in. So, um, but I, I have, and I have to admit, on my last update somewhere, I lost my stencils. <laughs> so, I, I, otherwise, I'd publish them for you. But I'm, I'm still digging through some older files to find them. But I've had stencils, and what I did is I. I built out all those stencils, um, and I mostly just used OmniGraffle to build the stencils. So I drew them in OmniGraffle. It has, by the way, one important thing that both OmniGraffle has and Keynote has that a lot of people don't know is Boolean functions. And Boolean functions are really powerful because what it means is you can take one object and cut it out of another object. So you can say, I, I want, you know, if you, if you uh, think about a Boolean object, you have, you know, you may want to say, I have a, um, there goes my thing. Um, you may say, I want to have a square. I have a circle over top of it. I want to cut the circle out of the square. And you can create new shapes with Boolean. So if you get good at Boolean, you can create a lot of interesting shapes with it. And I think most of the stencils in OmniGraffle were built that way. So what that means is, is that you can um, build some pretty complex, um, pretty complex things uh, inside, of, in, inside of the app. Uh, and so I had a whole collection for a long time. When I was doing this a lot more, I would have a whole collection of all the objects that I would need. Cameras, camera operators, long lenses versus short lenses. I had, you know, um, PTZs versus jibs. All this stuff was all kind of built in. And I would just throw those things in and lay them out. And, and it just made things a lot faster. And it's one of the things that kept us with it. I have to admit that as I moved more and more to wiring diagrams, I moved more and more to boxes like i just have boxes of things that, that wire this in and out and it wasn't as visual so I, I haven't paid as much attention to it um, as i did in the past go ahead bill 
There's also a service that OmniGraphalists, is that even a thing, use called Graphaltopia. It is not a fabulous thing, but one, one thing is good is it has kind of a community-based thing. So if somebody's de taking their time to devise really good OmniGraphal little uh, icons and things like that, you can get access to them. I tend to use the ones for Mac because I'm Mac-based. So if I need a picture of a Mac laptop in a wiring diagram or something else, I can just get that copy it and paste it into my diagram without having to mess with it. It's really good, particularly for people who do circuit diagrams, because all the standard symbols for resistors and capacitors and uh, gates and things like that are there. So you can just cut and paste from those rather than having to design everything. So Graphiltopia is a resource for you. Yeah, definitely. It's the resource if you're using Omnigraphil. And there's also one called Keynotopia, I think, that, that does something similar for Keynote. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. The ultimate, the Ultimat 12 HD Mini has the HDMI input at all, but it also has an SDI input normally used as a return. Can you use the SDI in instead of the HDMI? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, that's not going to be an input. Um, if you look at the diagram on the Blackmagic site, you can see that it, it's an input for the monitor in, but it's not, and it just loops back out. Uh, the input for uh, your foreground camera input is here and it's HDMI. So if you want to use SDI, you would have to convert it via converter. So, Or you step up to the $895 version, which is the uh, not called the Mini. So there's the Ultimate 12 HD Mini and then there's the Ultimate 12 HD. And that one's $895. And then you can see that it actually has the SDI uh, video inputs. So that's the one that you'll want if you want to uh, go to the higher end. And there's some benefits there because you do get... Uh, the mats out of this one as well. So not only do you do you get your uh, camera in, but you can you can pull the program mat out. And this is what we use in our one button studios, the higher end one, so we can pull the mat out and stick it into Mimo Live. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Which pod catcher is the best of these? Overcast, Castbox, Fathom, Pocket Casts, Wondery, iTunes, or Google Podcasts? I think most of us have gravitated to Overcast, <laughs> so so I think that they've they've spent the most energy on a lot of those, and so I, I almost everybody I know who listens to podcasts listens to it on Overcast or the Apple Podcast app, but there's not a lot of variance there that I've seen. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. A solid state logic has bought Harrison, the maker of Mixbus. What does the panel think? And he's got a link there to the story. I think it's great for both of them. <laughs> so I think it's a great, I think it was a great purchase. Uh, I think that Harrison, uh, we, um, uh, and I, did that happen just now? Did it happen just before NAB or just announced? I, I don't know exactly what the timing was, but I think that Mixbus is really, was a powerful solution that, that Harrison put together. Of course, it's based on some other more open source stuff, but it's, but they really added some of it to it and really is allowing uh, SSL to get into the cloud business as well as some of the older older but very useful technologies that Harrison has. I think it's a really it's a when I you know uh, yeah it's it's a really good mix. Uh, go ahead, Bill. I agree. Also, it's interesting because SSL was always something I thought of as in the rarefied world of high, high, high budget, high end stuff. They are doing a lot more in the modest budget stuff now. And they're trying, I think, to make the technological term uh, turn into being uh, having a wider product base and more affordable products while still keeping their quality there. 
to me, that's one of the things that NAB was always the best for. Oh, wait a second. That old company that's been around for a long time and I have one impression of is all of a sudden doing some real spending in the marketing, in the trade show space to get out there with their new stuff. It just tells me there's still energy in the company and they're not just resting on their laurels. They're trying to make a pivot into what people are going to want in the future. And that always makes me feel good about those kind of companies. And I was like, I, I was like, did I get surprised by this? It happened yesterday. <laughs> so, yeah. so right before, right before NAM and and NAB. So I was, I was, I was amazed that I didn't know that this was that this had happened. Um, I was like, uh, so anyway, Douglas, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but I think it's, I think it's a probably one of the most perfect solutions there. So we'll be really interested to see what they come out with. And of course, we've had uh, the folks from Harrison on before. We'll see if we can get them back on, have them talk about it. Uh, next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway says, do you have any experience with the Z-Cam box cameras? And if so, how do they compare with the BGH-1? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, you're seeing me right now on a Z-Cam. Uh, this, this, this company is really underrated. Um, so if I switch over, this is the back end. So if I go to the IP address, so it's got Ethernet on this camera. You could change your record and your resolution, all that normal stuff. But some of the interesting stuff that it has... Um, you could change your encoder, uh, you could change your audio, you could change time lapse. All this is from a web browser. So unlike the Blackmagic stuff, you don't you just don't have this kind of control over a web browser. I mean, anybody on the network can can log in and do this where you can adjust the white balance, uh, focus if you have the um, uh, lenses that will support it, uh, image profiles. The real interesting thing about this one, it'll do 4K UHD over the HDMI raw, so you could even send this into a um, Anatomist Ninja, and you can record uh, HDR. So you can transfer it over it uh, later on in HDR or use a lot. But that, that's the interesting thing about this How lineup. Does it get is to the there's not Ninja. Excuse me. How does it get to the Atomist Ninja through the HDMI? So 12-bit oh, ProRes uh, through. Yeah. So that's they you know partnered up. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole. Uh, suite of these cameras. There's the S6. I, the one that I have is the E2, but it goes all the way up to a full frame with the, the E2 F8 is the big dog. And we're, we're using, oh yeah, and then the last part that's really cool. Let me show you one last thing that's really neat that's unique is you can actually stream RTMP and SRT directly out of this camera. So right here, you just type in the IP address. Of, uh, so I could send this, we were talking earlier about uh, broadcasting to the cloud. This camera can go straight to the cloud. Just boom, just hit start, type in the IP address and hit start, and that's it, and off it goes. So that's that's uh, a really cool feature. Versus the BGH-1, there's a lot of control with the BGH-1. We're using those on our one-button studios. I, I like the image quality. It's uh, two grand for that camera. We chose it because of those controls where we can go in with the Lumix Tether app and we can uh, do a lot of the things that you're seeing in this app. And um, you also get uh, SDI out, you get Ethernet, um, there's a lot of control. It, it's they're both the the one that I'm using is a Micro Four Thirds camera, and then there's other models. The S1H is the bigger brother. That's a full frame, and so you can go that route too if you if you want the the larger sensor and want to spend a little bit more money. Yeah, the I think that the biggest thing that is I mean I think that it, I, I get why ZCam has done it, but the biggest thing that's held ZCam back is not having an SDI output, and and I think that they they don't want to be limited to the to the outputs that SDI has, but I know that I'll, I know a lot of people that have Z cams and are really happy with them. Uh, for us, it just doesn't, you know, there's a huge number of us that if you don't have SDI, it's just outside of our pipeline. Like, it's just like, oh, that's another thing that I got to deal with. And, and 
I think for a lot of us, as Zcam came up, but I think when you're saying, why is it underrated? Why are people not using it more widely? It's because the people who would use it, there's a huge chunk of people that would use it that when they don't see an SDI, they just go, I can't, I, I don't know what to do with this. And so, and, and the problem is, is they didn't have what the, they didn't have in some cases what a creator wants, but they did have this and they've been really successful and they, they build great cameras and the, and the fact that they have an ethernet output lets them scale up to do things that you can't do with SDI or HDMI. So there's a lot of, I get that there's a lot of options there, but that lack of SDI has probably been, probably cut their sales by 80% <laughs> because the type of people who want to use that camera want an SDI output, output into their routers and everything else. And that's been a real, real problem for a lot of us for many years now, you know, because we look at Zcam and we look at the box and we're like, oh my gosh, I, I really want this. And then you look at it and go, there's where, which version of this has an SDI? And they're like, none of the versions have an SDI. And you're like, okay, then you move yeah, on. When I compared it to, uh, I had the red, um, Komodo, the little guy, that one was five grand that SDI out. And I, I swapped them back and forth image quality wise. Yeah. The red's amazing, but you're also spending $3,000 more to get some of those, uh, color, it's a fabulous color and then you get the ability to actually rack focus so there's a lot of there's a lot of bang for the buck when you go to that level if you if you're producing a, a lot you're you're gonna want something either rent one or even go up to the raptor at that <laughs> if you're gonna rent as well just go area alexa or something but yeah the the uh i, I don't see the H, hdsdi out as a downfall because what i do is i go hdmi to ndi and to a 4k so i'm actually bringing the 4k this this is what's really cool about this camera is it's it's 4K HDMI out and then I'm kicking it over to a bird dog encoder which gives me uh, this camera all over my network so it, it's it's pretty cool for those that don't need we're not in an all HDSDI workflow and I have deck link cards and I have you know the ability to bring them in but th this is my workflow this way I, I roll and it, it works well. No, I think I think there's a lot of workflows that don't need it. I'm just saying that there's a huge market that was interested. I, I know there there was a lot of us when Zcam came out. Everybody was excited about the about the the cameras, and 80% of us just passed on because we couldn't fit it in our pipeline. <laughs> like you know, like it was like at the time this was I don't know Zcam's been doing this for I don't know eight or nine years I think now I I, I at least, or at least five or six. I mean I don't remember exactly when I was really digging into them, but it would have been 20. I think 16 or so that I was really looking at a lot of their early stuff. And, and so, and uh, they're really well known in the stereo slash, you know, there's a bunch of things that they do that we use for stereo and, and immersive that, that were, was why we paid a lot of attention to them. But the, but the lack of SDI has been a big, big issue for a lot of people with Zcam. And, uh, and again, there's plenty of people that have workflows like yours that don't need it. So that's their, that's their market. But they're, I think they just gave up. Yeah, big but you can't get 12 bit over HDSDI on Doesn't, most cameras, right? It's 10 bit. You can get 10. <laughs> like, you yeah. Know, so like, for know, those that, that would have used a Ninja, that's, that's the benefit. So it's, you know, teach the road. If you want to record 12 bit and get every last bit of color out, then this, this is the cat. This is why it's one over some, some filmmakers is that yeah. combo of Ninja plus Zcam 12 bit. I'm not, to I'm not saying HDR. It's a great camera, <laughs> like it, and it's a great flow, and it's got a bunch of advantages. I'm just saying that logistically, it this this wasn't an issue of the quality of the camera or the quality of the output. It, it a lot of times adoption. What comes with adoption is logistics, and and the logistics of of dealing with something that's not an SD a non SDI. Now, I think we're going to get past that in the next couple of years. I, I don't think 
if you talk to us five years from now, we're going to look at SDI the way we look at a lot of older connections like composite or whatever. I mean, SDI has got five, maybe five more years before we just stop using it. So I don't, I'm not saying that SDI is the, the be all end all. It's just that when ZKame came out, there's a lot of big pipelines that if you take SDI out of it, it becomes really hard to, you know, just, it's just a bunch of little bits and pieces that you have to deal with. And so, so I think that, especially from a live perspective. Um, and so I think that, um, and, and again, there was other boxes box cameras like the the BGH that's that was out there that a lot of people just chose instead because it fit more tightly into their pipeline. Yeah, um, the customers that we've sold the Z cams to, their single shooters are rolling out there and that's their workflow. They they want they want the highest they're going back to post. So they they're just a single shooter going out there, acquiring footage in the field, uh coming back and posting it. So they they don't care for HDSDI. They just want to yep, be able yep. to do their thing. They're they're not hooking anybody into their system and yeah. they're getting their shots and coming back. So, And I think that the challenge has been is that once that people go into the, once people go into the high, high end, they are, you know, a huge percentage of them are going to Aries, you know, like when you're going to film and, and big, you know, those types of things. And in the, in the other side of that, you've got the, the Sony lines, which are really, really powerful as well as the, as well as the black magic lines. And so it's just a crowded, it's just, it was just crowded for Z cam and that, that piece that was missing, um, because the you know black magic benefits had, has only HDMI cameras, but they also benefit from the, uh, the ecosystem <laughs> of being part. But they of They don't have 4K out on them, so that's where the Z cam exactly. And and for live, that people decided that they didn't need that. You know, like you know, for a lot of live, I mean, I I really like 4K, as everybody knows, but not many people use it. So so anyway, so we're um uh so anyway, those those I'm just saying that those are the challenges Z cams had. They're incredible cameras. Um, you know, so there's no argument that they're, they're not great cameras. I think that I probably would have put a version out that cost $1,500 more with an SDI. That's all, that's all I'm saying is like, I would have built a camera from Zcam that did that. Yeah, that's, that's the challenge with the box cameras is the form factor. They become so small unless you do one of those kind of, uh, you know, those, what do they call them? DIN connectors to, to get the SDI. I mean, it's mm -hmm. packed like that. But they could have, they could have put a DIN connector in and uh, yeah, they would have. They would have quadrupled their sales, in my opinion. Like if they just had a DIN connector with an SDI out and, and it was only one version of it and they, and you know, it just did everything it did except it had SDI out. There's a lot of us that looked at those for a long time, just kept on going over like, are they going to ever put out an SDI version? And they were, the, the micro cinema camera that you have that, that you loaned us for Mad in the Kitchen, that's DIN, mini DIN, right? Mm -hmm. On the HDSDI out? Yeah, so. in and out and HDMI. You know, like it does all all the, all, all of those things in a very, very tiny little box. <laughs> so yes, it's it's totally possible to, to put those things in. Uh, next question. Peter Moore is in from Auckland, New Zealand, and he has a link there to um, a voice changer plugin for OBS and wondered if anybody has any experience with it or has played with it. I, I, I don't. I, I took a, lot of, a quick look at it. It came in after that we started the show, so I couldn't really look at it in, in any kind of detail. But the idea of, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't quite understand what I would use it for. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, this falls under the category of be careful what you ask a digital, you know, computerized thing to do. Um, I've always said that my relative success with using OBS, even on a Mac, is that I don't ask it to do a lot. Getting it to start do to do audio processing to me feels like it would be going down a path of like, uh, you know, how much do you really want to ask it to do? Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael is up next. Alex, you mentioned AutoCAD being the tool of choice for larger scale wiring diagrams. What can AutoCAD do that uh, for that use case that H2R gear and or OmniGraffle can't? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think H2R gear and OmniGraffle are really designed for drawing uh, layouts of interconnects between equipment, uh, which is fine. And AutoCAD can do that as well. Uh, or do circuit diagrams uh, to some degree. The thing that AutoCAD can bring to you, though, is interfacing to architectural wiring uh, so that it can uh, interface the database from that, um, that interconnect diagram to an actual building showing where each of those uh, uh, points, connection points, comes out in the building, et cetera. And so it interfaces much better to architectural drawing than the other two. The other two are not, not designed to do architectural drawing, I don't believe. Yeah, and the scale, the scale of the AutoCAD stuff is, I mean, when the folks that I work with that do it in AutoCAD, they are labeling every, there's a label for every cable. Like, you know, this is the label that's going to get printed on that cable. This is how it's all going to work. There's an incredible amount of services inside of Autodesk beyond just architectural integration that don't exist in OmniGraffle or H2R, you know, and so I, and I would say for most people, for 90% of the population, you've, H2R gear would be enough for what you're doing and does a great job and it's a lot easier to use and a lot easier, a lot faster. There's about eight or 9% that OmniGraffle would add to what HDR, you know, H2R um, gear does, you know, just in scale. It, it, things would get complicated in HDR um, that we can do in, in OmniGraffle because it's a little bit more open-ended. And then AutoCAD's like 1%. <laughs> like the, there's like the top 1% will use AutoCAD for that. So that's that's the kind of um, scale that you probably are looking at there. Next question. Next one comes to us from David Brady. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the smartest possible charger for your iPhone, Android phone, and other devices that support USB-C and USB-A? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm going to uh, diverge a little bit here. Uh, I don't know, but... The other day on uh, Amazon, I came across... It's like I'm, I have something I'd like to talk about. It has nothing I to do with your question. Much more interesting, Paul. No, no, it involves... It involves chargers. This is an interesting device here. It works with... A lot of us have uh, these you know, high-powered DeWalt power tools. I know that uh, TJ does ha have some. This is a 100-watt charger. It'll, it'll charge up to 100 watts. It plugs into the wall, okay, so you can charge your batteries. Normally, these chargers are much larger, but this was an interesting picture. This guy's using his power tool battery to run his computer. I just thought that, I just thought that was interesting. Cool. hundred bucks, it's a, it's a wall wart uh, tool charger. Normally, these battery chargers are much larger. There you go. And <laughs> to answer the actual question, uh, the one that I like the most is the Wotobius, Wotobius, W-O-T-O-B-E-U-S. Um, it's a 240 watt charger. <laughs> and I have it you know, it's sitting somewhere here because I'm charging stuff with it. I don't think I can pull it out because it's connected to a bunch of things. It's an NGAN. Um, what you're looking for are NGAN um, style or a GAN, not NGAN, but GAN style um, uh Chargers. I have a lot of different ones, but this is the biggest and best one so far. Hyperjuice also makes some, and you know, I have I have five or six of them. Once you get used to the GAN style chargers, you're not going to go back to the stuff that Apple sends you. There's a good reason that they didn't they didn't bother to do that. Good bill. Quick. I was to say also, if you're looking at charging stuff, look at the Anchor stuff because that's their bread and butter, and they have chargers for everything and all the different flavors, and they probably have a few units that 
are agile and can do both USB-C and USB-A and, and read the piece of equipment attached and figure out what it actually needs. Yeah, but having something that does 100 watts per, per output and one or two of those is super useful um, to, to really charge things much faster. Uh, next question. Uh, David Brady in New York City. Besides the iPhone, what are some budget-friendly LiDAR devices traveling overseas and considering some scanning if time and place allows it, but tied to my old iPhone, which has been provided by his work for a few months? Yeah, the after the iPhone, the the stare up is a lot. <laughs> the next the next one that does anything in the area of LiDAR that does it remotely well is the is the BLK360. There is a less expensive BLK360, so it's not the the eighteen thousand or twenty thousand dollar one, but there is a there's a smaller uh, BLK now, uh, and I just can't think of the name of it right now. But it, I think that it's a um, uh, well, I thought that there was one that was out there, but there's you know there I thought that there was a BLK that was less expensive, but I could be wrong. The BLKs right now are twenty two to thirty thousand um, dollars, and so yeah, they're. It depends on where you're going, but but I think that um, there's not much else out there other than the phone, um, you know, because there's just not not a lot of, uh, it's a complicated thing to do. And I don't know of any other things that do it well. I mean, there's Matterports and Matter, there's the Matterport software that you can get. The, the geometry that comes out of it is not particularly good. But if you're looking for just really cool tours, the Matterport works really well. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Brett Below in Appleton, Wisconsin. I'm dying to try out Alex and Juan's new Telestration app with my Wacom Cintiq 16, hopefully soon. Does it allow for easy Telestration on top of a full screen Zoom screen sharing session? Yeah, so the uh, he's talking about this this little toy that, that, I, that Juan and I have been putting together that I had for a long time and Juan made way better. Um, we are... Uh, we are so close. Um, so uh, it is, uh, you do need a, um, an, it is designed to work with a compositing app. So something like a, you still need something uh, like a, uh, uh, you know, um, like an ATEM, you know, like it's built for, I will admit this Telestration app is built for what I, how I use it <laughs> and how I've used it for the last, uh, you know, eight or nine years. So uh, it's, it's really, really great. It does, it, it is a, a, a semi single trick pony so to so to speak, uh, one of the things that delayed it a little bit is that we that we did decide to go ahead and support the iPad as well as the M1. So figuring out the gestures and everything else has turned out to be a little bit of a process, um, you know. And so there's a couple of niggling issues that we're working on right now, um, but I think that we're probably going to be going into a wider beta in a couple of weeks, and then I I don't I expect us to release it in May. You know, like it's it's really close. It works great. It's just that I'm I'm very sensitive to. Uh, uh, reviews on at the Apple store. <laughs> so so I, I don't want to put out things that I know that I'm like, there's like one little issue that we have that we may go ahead and take the hit, but I'm going to have, it just means I have to look at the Apple store every day once we release it. So I can explain to people why we're doing it. My big thing is in the iPad version, I want it to be, I want the iPad, ver I don't like interfaces in just in case you're wondering, like, I don't like anything to pop up. And by the way, video pencil will do most of the stuff that you want it to do that, that will composite everything together for you and do all the, and supports NDI. And this one doesn't do any of those things. Um, the, uh, I don't like interfaces at all. I don't ever want to see one at all. There's a button that I can push that will bring up a setting, you know, now. Um, and, uh, and even that became a problem yesterday anyway, but, but the, I, uh, 
so the problem we have with the iPad is that how do you do gestures? So we're having gestures do everything, color changes and all the other bits and pieces, but it keeps on drawing when you do the gesture. <laughs> so one finger hits a little early. And so we're trying to figure that out. But I may just say, well, on the iPad, you still need a pencil <laughs> for your iPad to do it. Um, and so, so I think that that is, uh, um, that's, that's what we're kind of looking at right now. But that's the last little bit, I think. I think Juan's got almost everything else working perfectly there's a couple little little bits of pieces that we're ironing out but he's done an incredible job and we'll probably release it in, in may and it won't be very expensive I, i'm trying to keep it at, this is just us fiddling a little bit i uh, go ahead bill well i'm just interested is it fascinating to me is it an ios app a mac os app is it both how and it's how an do iPad you get slash m1 so it doesn't work I'm, on the phone okay like, so i just and i just decided it was I didn't need to work on the phone. Like we, we may release one somewhere in the future that does that, but uh, it but it it was Mac only. But I really felt like it would be better to have a SKU that just did Mac and iPad at the same time. Now that you can do that, so it's 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 generated out same you know very similar code for both of those, and it will and it's got you know a bunch of you know you can add a bunch of colors and you know do a bunch of uh, you know it's it, it doesn't do. It doesn't do much more than my older one did. It just does everything way better, you know. Like so, you know, and and so it's just a vastly improved uh, pipeline for it. Yeah, go ahead. And are you compositing on a switcher, or is there any way to bring the video into? It's just an input. Yeah, there's no way to bring the video in. Makes sense. I'm not. I'm not saying I'll never do that, but I'm saying that MVP, you know, is you know, or minimum viable product, you know, for both those listening, or or the release one is going to do what. you know, it, it, it's really easy to have an app. And even even now, I've stretched it out too far by saying, oh, I want to support the iPad. I just felt like I didn't want to release a second app that did iPad later or whatever. And so we're kind of going through the trouble of doing that right now. Um, I have other ideas for drawing apps. And so I need I, I need to release something and then get feedback and figure things out and, and you know, that kind of thing and get revenue <laughs> you know, for it. So uh, to keep one, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, compensated for the incredible work that he's done so far. So, so the, um, so anyway, so I think that uh, we're, we're, we're pretty close to releasing it and I think it should be, it's, it's infinitely better than what I had before. <laughs> so, so, and, and I've been really happy. I was happy with that. And so I'll be excited to let everybody play with it once it, we're, we're, we're not too far away now. Uh, next question. Ian Alford in London says the XR18 has been out of stock worldwide everywhere forever. Uh, is there an upgrade coming? And if not, why the problem? Good, Courtney. Well, maybe they'll announce something at NAM coming up next week. But um, I'd say uh, probably a supply, supply line of the A to D converters. Those chips have been out of stock forever a lot of places and now i can see that uh, and since this particular product which is the uh, ipad based mixer you stick an ipad in for behringer and, and it and it allows you to to mix together uh, 18 channels uh with that ipad control on the top of it which it uses for control so it kind of has to interface with uh, io the ios app that runs on the ipad so they're not likely to change the whole thing to accommodate different hardware so they probably are just waiting for those chips, and I'm looking now, and it says uh, they're expected to ship in September of this year. So maybe they're going to get back ahead and, and start producing them again. Uh, maybe they didn't see. It's not enough. It's not expensive enough a product to redesign for a different chipset just be, just to accommodate uh, supply-side interruptions. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Do you run Safari or Chrome or something else on your Mac? And how do you handle it and organize and or manage tabs? Good, Bill. 
I don't use a lot of tabs in my day-to-day -day work. I, I try not to. I try to be focused on the number of websites that I interact with, and not just continually bounce around and have to keep them. Uh, I use Safari most of my regular business life, but Office Hours here runs much better on Chrome. So every morning I boot into Chrome, uh, use that. I have been a little. I don't know what uh, there's been a little bit of trepidation lately because I've been reading so much about some of the Chrome issues, but um, that's what Office Hours really likes and works beautifully on every day, and it's been incredibly dependable. So I spend my first three hours of the day in Chrome, and then I switch and I usually use Safari for the rest of the day. And uh, did you, uh, John? Did you have your hand up, or did you? Take I, I did. I had to run to the bathroom real quick. Um, I have Chrome, Safari, uh, Brave, Firefox, uh, all running right now simultaneously. Because when I do web development, I like to see how they render in each one of the platforms. Brave is amazing. Um, you can go listen to to Steve talk about it on uh, This Week in Security. Uh, as far as browser goes, as security goes, is amazing. Um, but they all do a little bit stuff differently in, in rendering HTML, so I have to see what it looks like on each one of the browsers. But every day, all day of the week, I've got Chrome and Safari side by side. Good, Courtney. And of course, there's the Bing browser, which has ChatGPT built in to the, you know, I mean, it's the Edge browser, which has the Bing chat and Bing, uh, Bing's version of ChatGPT3 built into it. So there's a lot of AI tools now that are incorporated into that Edge browser and it is cross-platform and can I can you can download it on any of those platforms. So you might give that a try. Something different. Next question. Xander Snell in Miami, Florida. Hello all. Coming back to the wiring diagram subject for a second. Does anyone have any experience with Vectorworks and its Connect CAD add-on? Opinions on Vectorworks and ConnectCAD? Thanks. Yeah, Vectorworks is used in a lot of uh, previs for, we, we see Vectorworks at least in a lot of previs around lighting and around a, a lot of setups for events. Um, and so I, I know that it's used for other things, but that's where we see it the most. Staging, lighting are things that we see it in. I have not seen the Connect CAD uh, feature, so I don't have a lot of opinions about that. But Vectorworks seems to be a very powerful app that, again, we could probably, it's probably a great Tuesday session to bring those folks on and have them show it because it's, it's really powerful and has a lot of tools that nothing else has for the kind of work that it's used for. Next question. Brett Bellow in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. Sony just announced a major investment into Raspberry Pi to add AI chips to the boards for edge computing. What would you want to try building using a Raspberry Pi with onboard AI processing? Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, earlier, I think somebody put the, this link up or I just caught it on the news and there was a, a phrase in here that hit me that I thought I'd share with you, Alex, out of this whole article here. It's on CNBC. I'll put a link in the chat, but it says it's super important we teach kids about computers as they are now rather than how they were 30 years ago. So uh, while Raspberry Pi looks back on education, we hark back to the glory years of the 80s. We've uh, got to be conscious. We're not trying to make faster version of 1980s computers. So Sony made this investment because they, they want to, they want to be the standard, you know, they, they want to have this be what runs the new chat GPT, uh, these, uh, what do they call it, sensors and things that the, uh, uh, the Raspberry Pis use to, to do different things. So it's a very strategic move by, so they have these uh, visual sensing applications that use AI cameras equipped with uh, equipped with IMX 500 imaging sensor. So it's really interesting to see uh, Sony doing this, but I, I love that they're, that they're trying not to, 
uh, go back on the past that they they realize that this new computing can be done with, with AI and cheaper Raspberry Pis, and so 500 million bucks from from uh, from Sony going in. Go ahead, John. Tons of applications for IoT. Image processing is one of the big ones. Having toys with AI built in it would be a giant market. Yeah, there. There's lots of places where the glue of Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, and other things are just invaluable. And getting those out to the edge, they don't have to do big processing. They just have to, I need this to do this thing. I need to figure out this thing. I need something to, so we've used Raspberry Pis, for instance, to control cameras. We have a, there's a, behind me somewhere, there's a, there's a Ozo, Nokia Ozo. And we use the Raspberry Pi to control it. So what we did is we, we actually machined a piece of hardware that would slide into the Ozo and um, and then inside of it had a Raspberry Pi and inside of that it had a web browser. And we were able to log into the, basically over Ethernet, log into the camera and then remote control the camera um, from any distance, you know, so we'd have fiber out to the camera and then the, that would get converted and so on and so forth. And those types of things were really uh, invaluable to being able to control it. And you don't need a big computer. <laughs> I need a I need a tiny little card or a tiny little box that I can put into something that's going to do the do the work and the kind of work that you see in the melees in the in the um, the you know the B links the and then down to the Raspberry Pis and even Arduino are just super powerful um, to to being able to tie all those things together and so I think that it's great that Sony's kind of digging into those those areas and um, you know making it you know investing in making making that more quote unquote official. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there's a lot of million little applications you could use. How about an electronic nose, you know, to identify what is that smell and where is it coming from? Uh, it wouldn't be as good as a dog. It wouldn't be as good use, as a dog no matter what. Yeah. yeah, but your dog can't talk like AI can, you know. Maybe an interface for your dog. You put it around his neck and it translates those barks into English. But it has to figure out how to breathe in and out really fast. You know, that, that turned out that they, they, they uh, was you know, some random YouTube thing that I was watching that, that talked about the fact that they figured out why dog, one of the reasons dogs can smell so well is because they, as they breathe out and then pull back in again, and it's this, that disruption turns it, it's, it's what helps them pull. It's like a hundred times more powerful by doing it that way. And so then they just figured out how to build something that did that. And they said, oh, a Put a little that. electronic bellows on there that's doing like this. Exactly. You know, all right, we are changing subjects uh, and talking about NAB and NAB audio. And we're going to talk about it in a couple different ways. Uh, we're not doing everything in 5.1, so we'll talk about some of the other uh, audio solutions that we're working on here. Uh, it's an audio day, so we figured we'd talk about it. I will admit, straight up, we don't have it all figured out yet. <laughs> so we're open to people's input. We're going to talk about the things that we're working on uh, and uh, and talk about where we're going with it, both with the regular audio as well as the uh, the, the um, immersive audio. And we may, the immersive audio may fail. We'll see. Like, well, no one's ever done it before. Like, uh, uh, I think that one of the things we want to kind of outline is that we're figuring stuff out that no one's like gone to a conference. I mean, people have done it for big film production and there's some stuff, but but trying to figure out like a little mobile rig that you're live streaming out um, in 5.1 is nutty, I will admit. And it's, you know, it's a learning experience. So we're going to share where we are in the learning. And then next Friday, we'll talk about what we actually did. Uh, I do feel confident that I'm, that we're close enough that we're going to um, at least have some good test footage that we can figure out. But by by Cinegear, um, we should have a pretty solid solution working. Um, some of it had to do with the fact that it took a little while for us to get the get through the process of getting the live view in and, and everything else. And so we're going to kind of test things out. Um, and I got a little delayed last week on a project. So 
Um, so anyway, so we're we're now coming together on that. Um, and I'm going to give you kind of a quick overview of, of what we're looking at uh, on how we put those things together. And then again, we're going to be shooting behind the scenes. We're going to be talking about it more next week and on Friday. So just, just to give you an overview of it. So we have um, basically... We'll either have one or two live views on on site. So we have one from Live View that just came in. We just got it working yesterday. Um, and so, by the way, we're not doing stuff in Nam because I just got the Live View working. It took a little while to get it up to speed. It was there was a missing this and a missing that, but this is why you asked for things a week early. Um, and so, uh, Live View was kind enough to make this available. So we've got an LU eight hundred. The LU eight hundred is capable of eight channels of audio. Um, I think it might be actually sixteen, but we're, we were only paying attention to it got to have at least eight so we have um the lu 800 it, it's also capable of hdr and 4k and we are going to test some of that you know as we as we go through the process um and uh so the lu 800 is going to be our primary uh driver back now we are um also looking at doing some you know stuff with phones and a lot of things but i'm just going to talk about the the our live view process because that's going to be the one that's we're kind of kind of pushing the furthest uh within this test and so um basically you know, we can do stereo easily. You know, stereo is a pretty straightforward uh, thing to solve for, you know, having the cameras get, you know, get audio in. Um, we're going to use, uh, the in those cases, for the smaller uh, A7s and FX30 and so on and so forth, we are just using, for the stereo inputs, we're going to use the the input, The we're going to embed it in the camera, most likely. And in that embedder, we will, um, uh, we'll either use, a, we'll, probably use a mix pre for that so we'll have xlrs into the mix pre mix pre goes into the camera um, and we'll get the audio from there um, the thing you have to be very careful of in that pipeline is making sure that our levels are right um, because it's a very it's a very inexpensive connection <laughs> between the two and so we have to make sure that those all those all work well the one that's more a little more complicated is uh trying to figure out how we do 5.1 now a lot of people have asked why are we even thinking about doing 5.1 because that sounds crazy and it is crazy i'm gonna flat out say it's totally nuts to do it the reason is is that i think that if you're in a surround space uh, here's here's the thing that that i've learned working on atmos projects and other projects when you're sitting watching something when someone knows what they're doing is that when we hear things around us our mind opens up and starts listening to those things and it creates a bigger space in our head you know so it, it we actually feel like the space is bigger and it actually makes folks that are in the center in the center channel feel more present you know because of that that composition between the two and so so one of the things that we're um that i want to experiment with and literally the only way to experiment with this in my opinion to like does five one work in a conference is to do it <laughs> like you know so like this is how we're going to figure out like does this work what part of it works what doesn't work we're going to record a bunch of stuff that we can use later so that we can just like does this actually um you know work out but basically what we're what we're working on is is uh, uh i've had this around for a long time and haven't used it nearly as much as i should i think i used it like a couple times and now i was like oh this is great i have to do something with it and then it sat um so this is a this is a sennheiser ambio mic and if i, if I unscrew the top of this here um so this is an ambisonic mic first order and um and so here you have you know these little mic these little this little microphone array and this has four channels out that then has to be decoded now that these four channels are going to go into a scorpio and the scorpio you know so this but we're just passing them through the scorpio is not processing them the irony of course is that the that these that the eight series does not does not process the ambio but the mixed pre's do but i don't have i don't have a mixed pre that'll do that 
So, um, so anyway, so the, uh, so this is the, the, the lens, the, the, the microphone that we're considering using for this one. Anyway, um, we may try to get, a, I'm going to look today about getting possibly a stereo, a paired stereo, uh, mic as well to see what that looks like. But the point is, is that's going to go through, um, we need one of the challenges became embedding. So once we have, it's great to have the the microphone and we have it going into the, and then the idea is, is that we'll have one to two other mics. And so we have the Ambio mic going in, we have one to two other mics that are going into the Scorpio. All of our mic systems, this, this version, mics and IFBs are all electrosonic. So these are all electrosonic. They're all sitting in our office right now. I got to go down and look at them today um, to make sure that everything arrived. But there, we've got some IFBs as well as um, the, 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 um, wireless these are mic plugs that'll plug into the into into sm58s and so those will go into the into our um our main score our scorpio this is for the test one there's other kits for other things but the main test one so then what we have is we have the mics and we have the ambio and the goal is to play with the idea of processing uh how do we process we have to un we have to decode the ambisonic into channels and then we have to, then we want to take the mics and put them down the center channel. And the goal is, is to play with like how we can, because we have those in two separate pieces, we're not just taking a mic and, and, and picking it up. We actually have control of how loud those mics are in front of all the other stuff that's happening. And so one of the things that we're, and I've got a pretty long cable for it, so we can move that mic a little bit away. So we don't necessarily hear very much from the, of the person talking. Um, so we really just get this atmosphere of the, of the, um, of what's going on. And so, uh, we'll need to, we're going to send those back raw over the, over the live view, de-embed them in an FS, convert them to uh, Dante, send them to what looks like it'll probably be a Mac mini. Uh, and then we're going to decode those. Uh, we are, there's some still discussion about how the decode goes. Our, our backup is to just go into pro tools. Um, I will admit, <laughs> I had a bunch of discussions with Mickey about it. I don't care about the price of pro tools. I just hate the iLock system. The, they're, 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 um, their system I, with a passion. Like it's just every time I open it, something doesn't work. And uh, and and Mickey pointed out just because I don't use it often enough. So I, 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 I've had a subscription to iLock and every time I open it up, I'm like, oh, like something isn't going to work and I, it's going to check the key and then the key's not going to work. And then there's a half an hour of my time trying to figure out why it doesn't work. And it also just opening it up is repulsive because it looks like it was made in the 80s. Like you, like you open it up and it's just the most, it's the worst interface ever made. <laughs> you know, maybe not the worst one ever made, but pretty close. And um, and so it's just this horrible interface that takes a long time for me to deal with. And I feel like Pro Tools <laughs> should really get like modernized, you know? And um, anyway, there's a lot of companies that figured out how to do this without iLock and it's just a horrible format. So so that's why I don't, I don't I'm don't i resisting using Pro Tools mostly because I don't want to deal with it. Uh, but um, but we'll, we, we may still go ahead and put it on there. Um, and then... Uh, I'd like to do it in Logic because I've got it, and I, but I'm not sure. We're going to try to use a a Deer VR is probably what we're probably going to use as a decoder, and that's going to that that's a immersive uh, encoding software uh, as a plugin. And I just don't know if I understand the pipeline, or I don't know if we understand the pipeline of how to do that in Logic as opposed to Pro Tools, which we know, which is a known thing. So once that gets decoded, then that goes that can get re embedded back onto the to the video file, um, which will be coming in at 4K. A little tricky thing here. Uh, we're getting a black magic 4K. Uh, it's a four, it's a 4K and better. It's four analog channels or eight AES channels. Um, so we're getting the AES. The, the tricky part has been that the Scorpio only puts out four channels of uh, 
the Scorpio puts out four channels of AES out of the right and left because it's two channels per analog. But I have to get a Hiroshi cable to <laughs> for the Scorpio to get the other ones. So I have to. So I'm trying to track that Hiroshi cable down, which is I, I'm told is common. I have, have had trouble ordering it, but I might just be able to rent it. Um, and then that's going to get us up to eight channels out of the Scorpio into this little um, audio and analog and better. And then so that'll embed it on site. We're not trying to process anything. We're just sending all the channels back. And then the idea is that we'll process them remotely. And remember, all of this work is for probably a couple hours of streaming. Like we're not going to. The stuff you see during the panel, the stuff you see, much of the stuff you see will be all just stereo uh, HD. It will not be, you know, we're only going to do this test case a couple times because the pipeline is pretty crazy. And so uh, it, for us now, <laughs> by fall, we won't think about it. Like, like that's that's what will happen in the way this works. And I, I, this is usually the how, how things work is I, I can't fig quite figure it out. I run out of time. We get some testing done. We figure some stuff out, but by the next one, we'll have figured it out. And by the, you know, by this fall, it'll be just kind of like standard operating procedure, <laughs> like, you know. And so that's you know, and and so, uh, but we're very very close to making that work. So then it gets processed, it gets reembedded, and then it gets streamed to YouTube. YouTube, we have one of the few channels that has a five dot one, and we have HDR. We've already been testing, so you'll have HDR. The problem with the Black Magic is it's six G, not twelve G. There isn't. There is a. Uh, AJA version that's four times as expensive. And I, I didn't read the stuff right, to be honest, as I went through it. And I thought it was only four channels, but it's actually eight channels of AES. So we may look at seeing if we can get a hold of one of those um, to test. Um, but outside of that, we're probably going to use the, the, again, the, the, the black magic converter, at least on this, on this round. Um, and so anyway, so that's, that's the overall pipeline of how we're doing. I don't have a bunch of great graphs for it because we're still kind of figuring this out. But um, but that's the you know that's what we're working on here. Uh, happy to discuss it, take ideas, um, answer the questions that I have answers for so far. But I felt like it was worth kind of talking through some of these things before I, uh, um, before you know, as we as we got ready to go um, for for this process. Go ahead, Nigel. So it's really a question about what you just said. I really like the idea of using the five point one for when you're in one of the halls, because one of the interesting things about being in a hall or walking down of these big halls is the atmosphere of the sound around you. That, you know, you hear sounds and it directs your attention. And it'll be fascinating, I think, because otherwise you get this very sort of square box view of sound-wise of what it's like to be at one of those great exhibitions. The challenge is how do you mix that? So the sound coming from behind you when someone decides to do a live demo and has their speak up too much doesn't distract from where the camera's focused. How do you how do you get that mix right? We don't know because no one's ever done it before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, but there's, like this gets back into, I won't know until I do it. Um, there's, I think my guess is, is that 50% or 60% of it will be fine. Uh, 20% of it will be a disaster, you know, um, and somewhere between tw or 20 and 30% will be disaster and 20 to 30% will be magical. Like we'll find some stuff that went, wow, that was really cool, you know, and my backup, by the way, I'm the reason I'm not too stressed about it is my backup. It's not like I've, you know, we've talked about it and we're going to do it and we're going to give it a test. And this is why we're using the live view. But my backup is just going back to 1080p STR and it'll still be great. Like it'll be great coverage. Um, we can turn the 4K on and that'll be great to see what the 4K looks like, um, you know, and so, and I can do things like record to camera in 4K 60 
or even 8K60 if I want to, but 4K60 and record with the Ambio as a separate, you know, separate thing, you know, so, so um, uh, two system sound. And then we'll stream it out as a playout later <laughs> so that we can figure out like what worked and what didn't work and, and what we want to do. And we have more time to do it. I want to do it live because I think that we'll find things that we couldn't avoid or things that have to get done for live. But, you know, we're going to, the big thing is, is that there's no way to test covering a conference this way without the conference, you know, it's, so they're spending millions and millions of dollars for my lab. You know, so, so that, and that, you know, and so, or for our lab, we've got 50 people there that are going to be labbing out how to cover a conference that we need the other hundred million dollars being spent on the, on the space for us. And so we're going to take as much advantage of it as possible. This is just one little piece of the puzzle. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, interesting experiment, but I don't know the utility in, uh, you know, spatial audio in a convention situation because I'm you can't really control the environment uh, and the worst thing is to try and to be concentrating on what a presenter is presenting a new piece of equipment and somebody behind you is talking about all the money they lost at the tables last night or you know they were so drunk etc 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 and these side conversations you have no control over and they're going to be going on behind you and you can't really filter them out so uh, I think that would be more of a distraction uh, as far as ambisonics, uh, your problem, you know, you might look at the Zoom F6. I have one. It has uh, ambisonic support, of course. It has encoding, AB, decoding, balance gain linking to handle ambisonic. So yeah, that's a cheap alternative to those uh, Scorpios that you, you might be able to use to encode and record those. Uh, well, I have a Scorpio. So, so. Yeah, and, but it also could be a second for the second yeah. unit. And it also has a USB interface. So I, I don't know if it supports the Ambio over the USB. That would be a question yeah I, I don't the I, i'm only interested in just it 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 uh the scorpio grabbing it with the other mics and then and then doing the thing that needs to do like i don't it, there's not gonna be multiple ones that try to uh, it's everything i, I can do to do i'm just gonna do one <laughs> every day there'll be a stream that that we cover something that's got and again i i agree that there'll be places where it doesn't work the only way to figure out where it does where i think that i i do think that when we figure out HDR and 5.1 for coverage, it will look dramatically different and feel dramatically different for people who can watch it. Um, I think it will take us a year to figure it out. Like, like, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm, it's a slow burn. I think that the first time we do it, I think that we will say, oh, there's certain kinds of halls that we don't want to work in, but there's a lot of halls. I mean, you know, I, I'm incredible. I have an incredible sensitivity to audio around me. Um, and it's a real problem. Like I can't go to a bar with TVs on. I can't go to a bar with a band playing in the background. I can't, you know, I can't be in a bar. I can't be in a restaurant that has a lot of, has a high din level, you know, like it has to be, you know, like, I, cause I can hear everybody. <laughs> so, uh, and so I, so I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to it, but I, I think at, at, at the same time, I think that there's something about that that's very immersive that we, because we want to control it. A lot of times we use SM58s and, you know, things with high off axis rejection, and we give you this kind of muffled to what uh, Nigel was talking about a little earlier. It's kind of a muffled experience where you just hear what the person's saying, but you don't really have a feel. And I don't want to necessarily give you that feel because then I have to deal with it. To your point, <laughs> like I have to, well, then I have to deal with. I want to be able to. What the advantage of what we're doing here, if it works, if we don't have phase issues, if we don't have delay issues, if we don't have a bunch of other things that are possible, 
what it potentially gives us is the opportunity to mix that on our own. So we can pull that background down, we can bring it up, we can do whatever we want with it in real time, as opposed to, you know, we're, we, we're still using SM58s for the, for the main mic. One possible, know, so. one possible solution to that was to get a tall mast, like 15 feet tall, and put that ambisonics on top of it so it's That's equal distant from all people that are talking. So you won't get, you'll just get a, a melange and ambience without determining individual conversations. I'm bringing a, a boom pole, yeah, for it. So K Tech. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I have it, yeah, it'll be on a boom pole, and the goal will be to go up you know, to, to, to not, not have it, it's not going to be at ear level because of the, of exactly why you're talking about it there. So we want to spread, spread that out a little bit. Go ahead, John. I remember in the early two thousands that, that, uh, both real media or real media was prior, right? Real media and windows media services, both claimed 5.1 on their streaming services. What were they doing differently back then? It's all just channels. It's just they're they're. I just haven't seen. It's not that someone hasn't streamed five dot one. I just haven't seen anyone stream a conference in five dot one because that would be absurd. That would be crazy and and borderline stupid. Um, you know, and which is what I like to do. Like I, you know, I I've made a I've made a career out of doing crazy, stupid things that everyone laughs at that turns out to be useful later. So um, so I you know this is kind of standard operating procedure for me is to do something absurd. And so uh so. But what they were doing is, I'm sure, you know, 5.1 is not complicated. It's just channels, you know, getting good 5.1 where you're not just panning, you're actually, you know, you need now you need tools. And they probably had 5.1 that was just beds. And you could pan, you, you pan things to where they need to go. And that's great. Um, but but when you the, the first step here is for us to figure out just a, the 5.1, you know, there's all kinds of things we could do later. You know, if we have this going on, we could have, for instance, if you're covering a a conference we could be doing things like the sweepers are coming from behind you and they're and you know the there's extra you know the the how we get from one place to the other could include really cool things that that you know kind of are exciting and fun but the first part we have to figure out is how to get the base hdr and 5.1 to work um and again we have a lab that people spent upwards of a hundred million dollars on to you know for us you know to play in and um, my only regret is that I have to be somewhere on Wednesday. So I, because Wednesday was going to be my day, just we just really just play play because everything's done, but it's not going to happen that way. Go ahead, Bill. So for the people who are watching or listening to us now who are interested in maybe tuning in for this, I'm going to assume that it's the uh, YouTube coverage only, not the regular show. And how do they find out when we might be doing this so they can maybe yeah, tap into question. the stream? It's going to be, uh, once I've done it, and it hasn't been a complete failure. It will be on. I'll tweet it out. Um, the um, but there'll, there'll be some failures. I mean, we should assume that there's going to you know Sunday will be. We might try to do it on Sunday, and it'll be rough. You know, like it. I think I'm just you know no no one's ever done it before, and, and I'm just getting all the pieces together. So, and again, we may go on Sunday or Monday. Hey, we're just going to record stuff and test it over the next break. You know, like we, I you know there there is a fallback. You know, so so the uh, uh, which is not not to do that and and just realize that I ran out of runway or we ran out of run, runway in in this area. So um, so there's there's a lot of different possibilities there, um, but uh, otherwise it'll be in Discord. So we'll do an announce. I won't do it too often, but there'll be an announce all. You know, every at everyone from Alex announcements like, hey, we're going. We think this might work, and we're doing a live stream and that type of thing. So that that's where you can expect. To, to see the announcement. So definitely keep your Discord open um, to see how that looks. Yeah, go ahead, Dennis. 
So how are you going to uh, monitor the, uh, the, the audio when you're doing a live, uh, when you're doing a live stream with the, with five one? So the, the, um, Kevin will be able to actually hear it in the, in the office to do that. But the main monitoring is going to be pushing out to YouTube and people are going to give us feedback on how it sounds. Um, you know, I think that, uh, depending on his time frame and when we can line it up, I think Mickey will be able to hear, you know, a fair bit of what's going on and, and being able to review it. It's going to be kind of a behind the, we're going to be driving a train that we're 20 seconds behind a lot, you know, like listening to it on YouTube. Again, we will get better at this, um, you know, and we will figure it out. I don't know how well it'll work, but I can't do it any other time. <laughs> you know, so I can't. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the live view, you know, we have the live view for a little while after, after NAB. So we're, you know, there'll be continuing tests, but we just got it working yesterday. So, so we're, a lot of it is us figuring out a couple pipelines that are, that are there. And again, I, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with, you know, rolling 737s down the, down the runway when there's nobody in it. So, so anyway, so we're, so, you know, our, our general coverage is going to be standard, uh, not standard definition, but HD stereo. We've got one to two kits that'll do that really easily. We'll be using phones. We'll be, we'll be the, the range of what we're doing will be very wide. It'll be phones. Um, you know, a, 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 you know, most of it will be HD, um, in stereo out of the, out of the, um, uh, out of the live use, you'll probably see us experiment with this maybe a half an hour to an hour each day. We'll find some time to turn it on. Um, I may take it to a party at some point if we if we have people that are willing to to give it a shot. But again, we're just trying to figure out what makes sense, you know. And 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 the only way we can do it is to turn is to do it. In my opinion, like you know, I we can talk a lot about what will be a distraction, what will be bad, and 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 Courtney may be a hundred percent correct that this is a horrible idea. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to, to say up front that that could be the case. I'm just saying that I, I want to see it. I want to know. There's been a lot of times when I've had things in my head that I didn't think would work and then they worked and then it was amazing. <laughs> so, so the, uh, uh, so I, that's what we're, that's what we're going to kind of fiddle with. Um, uh, next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. What's the plan for audio signal chains for interviews with three or more people on camera? So if we, we probably won't do that many of those because I'm, you know, I, I think that they're harder to put together, but uh, the um, uh, the audio chain is we have enough electric. I think we have four wireless electrosonics that can go back to um, the Scorpio. So if we do that many, we probably use the kit that has the Scorpio in it. Um, and so we ha we have enough electros to do that. If we split them in between the different kits, then we don't have enough electros to do that. But that's so we have mic plugs. So we'll have four uh, SM58s with mic plugs that are going to be our main uh, interview mics and those will either be divided among the you know between them or or one unit having all of those so that's that's our plan uh next question paul wallace austin texas what's the most popular and effective wireless interview mic for interviews with only one mic in my opinion the electrosonics which is what we're using these are mic these are electrosonic mic plugs they're great uh and um you know the only other ones i'd probably use are the sure um the sure axions you know in this kind of environment um, but the, you know, the, those are the, those are the ones that I probably lean into for the, there's a lot of other ones that are a lot less expensive. And we're very fortunate that, uh, Electrosonic is a, is a friend of office hours <laughs> and is lending us a bunch of things, uh, with, with, uh, you know, they, they've been really great. So we're, we're happy to use their, their stuff. And I've been using Electrosonics at NAB. The reason I wanted to use that specifically is because I've been using their wireless at NAB for 15 years, you know, like, you know, I usually ping them. It's usually, I have never asked for as much as we're using today. 
but I usually ping them and go, Hey, how's it going? <laughs> like, you know, got to be, can I borrow some things? And they, they lent us some stuff for IBC as well. So, um, so anyway, so we're, we'll keep on using their stuff right now. Go ahead, Bill. And Alex is talking about the plug-on transmitters. That's commonly you see in the field for interview reporters and things like that. And it'll actually plug on to any dynamic mic. Mm -hmm. So you typically see things like the SM58. You see a lot of the Electrovoice RE50s, uh, even the 635s. You see um, the Biodynamic M58s. Any of those dynamic interview mics with a long handle, you can plug this onto the bottom of, match it with a receiver, and you're good to go. Good, Dennis. Yeah, I love my uh, I love my Sennheiser uh, MD46 with a uh, Sennheiser plug-in, and it's a great great interview mic, and it also uh, will uh, well you wouldn't use it as a hammer, but you probably could. <laughs> but <laughs> the Electrosonic uh, wireless, I, I love these things. Uh, just yeah. reliable, stable. Yep, yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, next question. Dennis Wojtek uh, in New Kensington. What type of microphones and reasons for using them, especially in 5.1 in the NAB coverage? Right now, we're starting with an Ambio. That's the one that I showed a little earlier. So that's this, um, uh, this Sennheiser, uh, Sennheiser Ambio mic. And we're using it because I own it. <laughs> like so, so it's it's it does what it should it should provide signal that we that we have here, and it's something that I have laying around. Um, and I have under underutilized it over the last couple of years. And so, um, so I'm excited to see how it works. And if it, and we may look at a couple other options. I may be looking at a couple um, bits and pieces. Sometimes we'll get there. Uh, I'm notorious for like talking about what I'm doing and then someone lends us something during the show to do more testing. Um, so that's not out of the question either that we may end up with other mics uh, or other systems once we're there and talking about what we're doing. Um, it usually also leads to the next version. Uh, when we're talking about what we're doing, taking an Ambio mic, putting it on a stick and sticking it up there, will get a lot of attention. <laughs> like, you know, uh, especially from, especially when we're in the audio section. And uh, so the people who know what I'm doing are going, you know, it, it's, it's a, it'll, they'll probably come up and talk to us. Like so, so, so the uh, if they have a, if they have a solution, and and we're in their section and we're doing something absurd, uh, oftentimes we'll get some attention, and so we'll we'll see what 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 comes out of the woodwork when we start doing that. Um, next question, Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Can you monitor the MBO levels live, and if so, how does that work? Not really. So I mean, we can on the other end, but I don't think we're set up. There's not really any decoding, and and again, I. Had very little experience with i had used this in a different format before so with a different mixer so i haven't tried it with scorpio i don't know how much we'll be able to do live it's mostly going to get we're going to get feedback and again we're going to try to make, just look at it make sure the levels are good and then how that mix happens is going to happen back in san rafael um and it'll either be by uh you know either uh, mickey will be in there remotely or um or kevin will be doing some some stuff just moving it up and down again we're going to record all the raw tracks and then we're going to you know do the best we can live so that we can try it um and then we're gonna you know figure out what didn't work <laughs> and error correct for the next one uh next question dave troutman edmonton california uh canada sorry about that what do you think would about getting the full effect of the atmosphere and noise level would be to enter the venue from outside at least once yeah i think it'd be great it's a good idea. Be and, and definitely if you have those kinds of ideas let us know because we're we're there. We've got gear. Well, you know, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> That's how I'm kind of approaching it. 
Uh, next question. So you put somebody on the monorail with the system and have them yeah, exactly. come in to the show. Exactly. exactly. Paul Wallace up next from Austin. How many office hours interview crews will there be on the floor at NAB and who are they? Um, Brian Shand is managing that. There's three teams, I believe, that that are building up that. And then during um, some of the other other bits and pieces, I think that there is, uh, you know, a lot of people will be using iPhones to jump into after hours. And so we're, again, this is one side of this is high end. Um, I was also talking to Keenan Campbell about possibly using Mr. Net for some of the stuff that we're doing. So we have, you know, so Keenan will be on on one, you know, we'll, I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate that into what we're doing. And so we'll have the Mr. Net stuff potentially there. We'll have um, uh, phones there, possibly a mixture of the two. Um, and then and then also, um, I'm trying to see if, if it's okay for me to bring Mr. Net into some of my conference sessions and then put it into after hours so that people can interact with it and so on and so forth. And so, um, so anyway, so we're, we're working on a couple different, different ways of approaching that, but there's three main teams that are going to be out there doing, doing stuff. Uh, next question. Uh, Xander Snell in Miami. What's the strategy for making the ambient conversations not intrude on the interview and or review? Have you considered putting the mic high above the conversation level to make in the inverse square law work for you? Yes, that's the plan. So, so we'll, We'll see if it if it works. Um, you know, there's a lot of things up there too, so it may just be worse than putting it up there than it did before. And you know, when we'll know when we do it. <laughs> so, so, so we'll uh, we'll we'll you'll see us uh, playing with that some more. Uh, next question: Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Do you need a Scorpio, or could it be done with a couple of Mix Pre Ten Twos? Uh, the real thing, the real issue with Mix Pre Tens is the pipeline to get the audio back out again. So we need to get the audio embedded and then back out to it. So we need enough channels to do that. So the, in some ways, the mix pre is easier because it'll process those, but I don't have any, I don't think I can get six channels out of the, I don't think that the, I don't know how, I don't think that the tens got like two, I think to go out. So, so, um, so that's the problem is you need an eight series to, you know, currently you would need an eight series to get the channels back out of the, out of the box. That's the, that's the challenge. And that's why we're going to use a Scorpio for that. Um, next question. Andrew Lipnick in San Francisco, will you be testing fold down from 5.1 to stereo or mono as part of your setup? Nope. <laughs> so we, we will we will in the future, uh, but I don't expect to do any. I'm just going to be happy that the 5.1 comes out, so I'm not going to add another variable to it this time. Uh, by, by the next NAB or by IBC or something like that, you can expect us to be having a, this pretty well figured out, and that has to do with uh, tone mapping down to SDR from HDR, um, you know, getting the frame rates right, getting the five watt folded into stereo. Uh, but no one, again, I don't think no one that I know of has really done any like done a 4K 5.1 stream from a conference before. I mean, they might have done other versions of some part of that, but there's a lot of variables that we're trying to manage. So we're gonna so we're gonna just manage the ones that we have in front of us right now. The MVP minimum viable product. <laughs> Next question. Next question involves heresy. Paul Wallace says from Austin, Texas, do you ever hand over the mic to the interviewee? No. <laughs> nah. Never, never. Never, never. Uh, if, if, we have, if we have two mics, sometimes we hand it to them because it's just a lot of things to manage. I'm managing a Q&A system or something like that. But almost always, we if I'm going to interview someone, I want, I want to hang on to the mic because I literally oftentimes need to take it away. <laughs> like you know, okay, you're talking too much, and so and so. Otherwise, you lose control of you, you lose control of the conversation really fast. And most people, when you interview them at a booth, are very excited about their product and are not super well trained in 
in, I mean, some of them are, if, if you ask for an in interview and they'll hand you someone that has been trained and usually they, they talk in small bites and that's good, but you can have some people that kind of run on and don't get to the point and that kind of thing. And you need to be able to manage that. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Many theaters in Europe have RO3D. Could you see break room, uh, breakout room feeds using this tech? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can I can definitely see us playing with a lot of different... I mean, we're going to start playing with the tech. I think that technically with the break... I'm, for some reason, I thought the breakout rooms... Yeah, so I, we'll play with the, the, that more. So stay tuned. Again, this is the very first step. That's why we're talking about it now. That's why we'll talk about it next Friday. This is just the very first step down the path to see what what's even possible. Um, next question. Uh, Darren McMahon in Leeds in the UK regarding uh, surround and or ambio at NAB. Do you envision the pre's ever being off camera? And if so, uh, do you know of a way to make sure that within the surround mix, the presenter's mic follows the presenter and not stays center channel? I'm interested for another idea. Uh, we could. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things we could do there. Uh, I, we, in this test, we will most likely stay in the center channel. We may play with it somewhere in the future, but they'll also be probably framed in the center channel. So, um, you know, in that area, but, um, so I don't know how much I can say it's possible for you to track the position of a person in relationship to the camera using, um, ultra wide band. Um, and you can then know where they are. And theoretically you could control a mix that way. You know, you could send that metadata back and, and control that mix there. And we have done that in the past and it's pretty impressive. Um, we're not going to do that on this one, but it's not that we will never do it. Uh, next question. Andrew Libnick, San Francisco. How is RF coordination handled at NAB? Will you be issued frequencies from an RF coordinator? We've never, I've never talked to an RF coordinator at, at NEB. I'm sure that there is one, <laughs> but we've just shown up and we scan the place and figure out where our frequencies can sit and start going. Uh, there, it, it, interestingly enough, that outside of the conference area, there just is, there's not that many people like us walking around doing coverage. You think that they are, but most of them are not. And most of them, the vast majority of them are creators and the vast majority of them are using 2.4 or 5.0 uh, or whatever. They're not using real mic um, or they're using sennheiser 100s <laughs> like so they're so they're the, the sennheiser eng 100s that's like and that one by the way i never take to nab i did once but the problem is is that everybody's got an eng 100 and everybody has it on the default frequency and they just are stepping all over each other constantly and so the first thing you do with a sennheiser with a sennheiser eng 100 is change the frequency like just literally when you open up the box just pull it out and move the frequency somewhere else because everyone, no one, because no one else that buys it does that. And so, um, so anyway, so we're gonna. Uh, I I found my my little RF Explorer, but I haven't used it forever. So I'm gonna try to see if it still turns on. It's been five or six years of sitting around. So, but anyway, so we're we're gonna you know, but we'll we'll find something that works, and we may have some hits, and that's kind of the thing. But again, I there isn't again it's not as busy as you would think at nab that's not been our experience um it's just that there aren't that many people doing live hits from the floor almost nobody they're in studios the people who are doing live hits are generally in studio sitting and now it's been years it's been four or five years since i've been to nab maybe i could be wrong there could be 20 live views wandering around um but usually there's one or two you know of, of doing you know doing live uh walk arounds and everyone else is sitting at at some 
booth somewhere doing interviews, which I'm, I, I don't want to do anymore. Like I only want to be on them anymore. I used to be a guest on those a lot and doing them. And um, I, I have a way of doing them. I have an idea of how we can do them in the future, but it'll be different because I don't want to host at the, this is a whole nother conversation, but I don't want the host at on the table. So when, when we do it, we are going to get a booth at some point with somebody. But what we're going to do is people will come to us to show off their product. And the people that they're talking to is this panel through a screen. So they'll look up. It's a digital first experience. They're going to look up. They're going to come to our booth. And we're going to have cameras to do close-ups. And we'll have cameras to do wides and everything else. But they're just talking straight into the screen, talking to the audience. And I think that's going to be much more compelling than, than what we're what what we've done in the past. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, for, for many years, you got to remember that NEB as a trade show was for broadcasters by broadcasters, and there wasn't that much general public interest. Boy, has that changed over the course of the 10 years. I've said on the show before, I remember the first time that a, that a vice president on set said, are you going to shoot any B-roll? And I'm going, I don't even know that term. Now that's kind of part of the normal lingua franca of everyday business and more people understand what's going on. But I had the same experience Alex did. I would maybe see one or two crews who were well-equipped with some sort of remote system and a reporter usually and a producer and um, the actual camera operator being a separate person two or three times per show in NEB for a lot of the years. And that was all the amount of time. There's not a, a big group of people who have in the past been running around doing that. Maybe more this year as more of this video journalism stuff happens. We'll see. Next question. Next question comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton. Again, it might be cool to take it to either a press conference or into the press room to hear the hubbub. Just a thought. Yeah, 100%. I mean, again, what we should look at is that um, I'm available in some some periods of time, and there's there's going to be times when the Live View has some, some time, and I think that we should try to figure it out, uh, at least record so that we can see what it sounds like and, and looks like. Uh, there might be people that are a little sensitive in the press room of turning it on because they have conversations in there. But but um, I definitely think finding spaces would would make sense. It's interesting. There's there's a uh, there's no no black magic press re press event this this, uh, this year, which I thought was interesting. Um, and AJA's press event is happening uh, a little later this morning. So I think nine thirty this morning is when the AJA uh, product launch that they have. They, they sent me some you know press invite. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, that's, I gotta say, that's the one thing I'm really missing is the, my time in the press room, because it was really brilliant to be able to see people that you had read and talked about, and they're all there working, and you make connections there that I had not made anywhere else. And of all the things that, that are reasons that I'm sad about uh, the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this, and I'm really excited about it, but not seeing those kind of friends at NAB who would gather around those kind of things is one of the toughest things about not being there. We're really glad that you're holding down the fort, though. <laughs> Thank you for doing that, because otherwise it'd be really complicated. I was trying to figure out how I was going to do it from site, and I was like, oh, it's going to be really hard. So it's going to be good. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael says, wouldn't you need six wireless transmitters for the Ambio mic? So the Ambio is four, um, and uh, I'm just going to wire it. I've got a long snake. <laughs> It's four four channel snake, so that's that's how that's going to go. It's it, um and that's going to go into the pole, and the pole's going to go right up behind the person. So there's a um, you know that's the that's our big plan on how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to do with wirelesses because your wirelesses have the preamps in them, and the preamps have to be locked together gain wise. So 
it'd be tough to do uh, with wireless interfaces to each one of those four microphones. Thought across my mind. It just was like, I don't know if I have time <laughs> to make that work. So to, to Courtney's point, I was like, ah, we'll, we'll wait for that. Uh, next question. Peter Moore, Auckland's back with, given that we're light on quest. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Brian May, legendary guitarist for Queen, released a signature series amplifier product line. Any thoughts on it? He's got a YouTube link there. No thoughts. I don't know. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Dennis Wittek in New Kensington. Is the increase in attendance at NEB by general participants thought to be YouTubers? Uh, is there an increase? <laughs> I guess is the question. Is there? Are they expecting an increase in in NEB attendance? Dennis, I, did you did you uh, did you know of any? Increase? No, I was I was just wondering because you know uh, maybe the. Uh, there will be an increase, but uh, is the non-broadcast group that is interested in this technology be from the uh, from the YouTubers? Because there, you know, there are so many of them out there. You know, here's the funny thing: is I, I work with a lot of YouTubers. I'm not sure how many of them even know NEB exists. Like, like literally, I just don't know. Uh, when I talk to them, they're like, "What's going on?" I was like, "Well, I'm getting ready for next week," and they were like, "What's going on next week?" <laughs> so, so I was like. So, so the, you know, and, and so I think that, uh, I don't know, there definitely are YouTubers that do know about it and they're going to be there, but I don't know if there's any, um, I don't know if the flow is probably, it's probably, my guess is it's negligible, the number of creators at it compared to the total number of people there. But for a long time, NAB has been a lot bigger than, you know, it's been educators and, and, uh, corporate and, you know, everything else. I mean, the, the actual broadcasters at NAB is probably less than 25% in my opinion. It's it's really this whole ecosystem around building content. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Hundred percent agree with that. And I will tell you that I think it might increase as people see what the experience of NAB is actually like. It's a unique place with a unique, rich environment for people interested in any kind of content creation. And um, also, they've changed. You know, this is the first year they're really opening on Sunday. And I got to believe that it's part because they wanted to appeal to the general walk-in crowd from. Las Vegas and people who might come in, drive from the surrounding areas, who've always heard about things like NAB, understand it's a big show and there's a lot of cool stuff there and that they want to see it. They have, it's been hard to, to get in on a Monday through Friday thing for the people who are working. This year they expanded it to Sunday, I think, to allow some of that. And so I think they're looking at Sunday and saying, I wonder who comes on Sunday and are they going to be a different crowd than we would normally get on the Monday opening first day of the show? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I think most YouTubers are probably into CES or uh, any of the streaming, what is the big streaming video conference they have every year for YouTubers specifically uh, that always attend that. Uh, it's been down in Anaheim uh, the past few years until COVID hit. Um, so they're probably, you know, most YouTubers would be, uh, you know, showing up at NAB would uh, be shocked when they see the price tags on a lot of this professional equipment uh, that is used in broadcast. So, uh, I don't think we're going to see too many people uh, coming to NAB that are uh, new YouTubers looking for, you know, the next great podcast camera to use on their YouTube. Which is interesting because there are the next great podcast cameras will all be there. <laughs> like, like the, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that NAB is the place where all of that stuff is shown. 
Uh, all those cameras are released. You know, I expect to see Sony come out with two or three more cameras next week, um, and most of them be full frame, most likely. And you know, where they're going to be, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things that that you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Black Magic comes out with new a lot of new things that that creators want to use, um, as well as Canon, as well as Panasonic. All, you know, this is a big push, and and that market is massive for them, um, but it just doesn't. I think it's hard to get those. The only, and I just don't see a lot of YouTubers again that that are the real high profile ones showing up for these events. I don't think they understand them that as much. It's just not. It's just a different culture. They they know their culture really well. So VidCon and you know and and YouTube Connect and you know some of the, a lot of those ones are stuff that they that that I think the interesting thing is I think more YouTubers would do well to go to NAB and more NAB sponsors or exhibitors would do well to go to VidCon. <laughs> like, you know, and 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 some of them do. Uh, again, Sony has been uh, lethal in this area. I mean, they just had a huge Sony Creator week last week or whatever. I saw I just saw posts from friends that are there. Um and they really they really doubled down and they did that by seeding creators with Sony's focusing on the the feature sets for for creators. Um, building, you know, build really building those relationships, and so I think other companies could probably learn from that. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, but Sony Broadcast is a completely different division. They don't talk to the other <laughs> the other divisions that are would be the YouTuber, the the consumer electronics. But when you go to the Sony booth, you'll see all of them. I mean, Sony Broadcast, you, you, they're they're all there. They have the broadcast cameras around that one edge. But the other cameras, I mean, typically in I mean, Sony booth is really big. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a yeah. little uh, it's a huge cave. It, it hasn't changed in size, I think, for the last twenty years. It's like a hundred by a hundred and something like that. Um, but I will say, by the way, if you're going the Sony wall, the LED wall, if it's like it has was the last time I was there, it just shows you the future. Um, next question. Uh, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. How many interviews would you expect the crew to do in a full day? Bill. Well, in my years covering it, I used to go with uh, Chris Hurd's crew from DVinfo.net, and I would consider it a good day if I got above 10, and I consider it an excellent day if I got around 20 from the show floor. Now, most of the time I had a cameraman with me, so I would do the interviewing and the cameraman would shoot. Then we run it back to the press room and put it up there, but that was the max I could do. I would suspect Alex is able to do much more than that. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, we'll see. Like more than one. We're going to do more than one one interview a day. That's what I can promise. Uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Grenville, Illinois. Interested in the estimated costs of booths. Any idea what a small booth costs? Maybe a 10 by 10 added costs? Can you set up your own gear at NAB? Or is it done by the facility crews? Yeah, so the if I remember correctly, and I, you know, I, don't, I don't know what the current... Let's just throw some numbers out. I think it's about $60 a square foot. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure that that's the number anymore. It could be, I may be off by 100%, but it's somewhere between 40 and $120 per square foot. Um, you're you're going to pay, that means you're going to pay somewhere between four, for a, a 10 by 10, that's 100 square feet, that you're going to pay somewhere between four and $12,000 for that, just for the space. That's not with anything in it, just the space. Once you get there, you'll pay Teamsters to put it together for you. So you need to make sure that you understand how you're going to do that. You can oversee it, but you can't touch it. No, no drills. <laughs> so, so the, uh, so they will put it together for you. And that there's a bunch of reasonable people get edgy about that, but having a bunch of people running around with power tools, it's not a good, great idea. Having the people who do this all the time there makes a lot more sense in the grand scheme of things. Um, people do bring, bring smaller ones on a 10 by 10 booth. A lot of people are not going to bring 
a lot, a big booth, or they're going to bring a complicated booth. So you may build a booth out there, but you may have a pop-up. A lot of times, the smaller ten by tens have curtains that just—it's like a row at the end of the at the end of the <laughs> just a row of booths. Then they get a table, and they have a, they have some stanchions on either side to separate them from each other, and they have a they have something behind it they can staple things to or 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 pin things to or whatever, and that's what they get for a ten by ten. And so that's the um, for a ten by ten, it's a different. When you start going as soon as you go past ten by ten, you can go ten by twenty, which means you just rented get two ten by tens. Then you go 20 by 20 and now you're building a booth. Like at 20 by 20, you are now, you have a booth and you have typically, um, you know, infrastructure and again, builds and so on and so forth. One thing people forget is to make sure that some part of that build is a little bo- is a little room that they can store things in <laughs> because it really is hard if you don't have a room. So you, you, they don't design, everyone who's done this more than once, you can always tell that no one, someone who's got a 20 by 20 that doesn't have a place to go. Has, hasn't been doing this for very long or hasn't been thinking through it for very long because they'll very quickly put in a little, a little, at least a little room where they can store things because it just makes all the difference in the world on the booth. Um, anyway, so, but you're probably, you know, it'd be very hard to do it for less than 20. You know, I mean, a 10 by 10 where you just roll in maybe 10, 10,000, but other than that, it's still expensive. And when it gets bigger, I mean, those booths, like the Sony booth is probably... Sony booth probably represents between five and fifteen million dollars of investment. Is like close to the fifteen million if you count all the people that guy had to fly in to do it, because they have specialists that have to come in from a lot of different places and everything else. And so it's it, those are big investments. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I was just looking over to see if I had any setup pictures because I've been uh, as an exhibitor or working with exhibitors. I've gone in beforehand. Building this city that is NAB is a huge undertaking, and uh, Alex is exactly right. It, you know, it has to be built kind of in layers. You get these huge monoliths where they put these millions of dollars things. Sony, JVC, all the you know kind of the big names in broadcast will do that. Then they have to fill in, and you don't want when one of those big booths has to come in, and they have to really be careful about how to get in to have a hundred other booths in front of them blocking your way and things like that. So there's a lot of coordination that comes into where they park their exhibits outside, the order that they come in, how they build areas out over the course of time. They won't let you in until your time is kind of getting there. And the smaller people usually kind of get in last for that kind of thing. It is a huge (laughs) logistical undertaking. And yeah, you can't mess with anything yourself. This is a union crew and you have to use their people. And I think it's sensible. If you want things like power drops and or internet drops, uh, good morning to big money. I think 10 by 10 internet is like six grand. Yeah. Yeah. just Just for that right now. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. One possible alternative is what we did uh, when exhibiting at an AB is make a deal with um, someone who has a booth or has been a yeah. long time uh, uh, exhibitor there. Because also uh, now this this year it's probably going to be fruit basket turnover, but a lot of the big uh, companies fight for that booth space to be in the same space every year, and it's grandfathered in, and you have it's a seniority system. So to get a spot in a cer- certain hall at a certain space. Uh, you have to. You may wait years to get that. So you might find a larger manufacturer that may not have that much to show this year and make a deal with them to put your product in their booth. Uh, and that there's a lot of that that goes on. A lot of people uh, put their products, especially if they're complementary products that are non-competitive with that particular product, like a prompter in a camera or, yeah. or a tripod booth, something like that. So that's another way you can get your products in without having to pay the expensive cost of... Uh, of the booth, 
Uh, and as far as hooking things up, yeah, you do have to have the union guys assemble all the any any walls, uh, any structure that is in your booth, any wiring, electrical wiring, any internet wiring, all the rest of your your wiring for your particular product. Of course, you can bring in, and you have to handle all, hooking all that up. And sometimes, like the Sony booth, you have enough uh, interconnects. The amount of of wiring that goes into that booth is the same as a major television station, which they have to bring in and wire up within about uh, you know three or four days. Yeah, yeah, and most of the teams for the larger booths start working on it three to six months ahead of time. And they 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 have meetings all about all year, but they go into within three to six months. There's some people that are just full time on that booth. You know, like that's all they that's all they're figuring out is the logistics around that. I don't know if we want to take more time, Alex, but I did find a couple of pictures of just in kind of building state. It's okay. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about it in the future. Yeah. Next question. RB, and what's your guess as to how they will be split out by categories? You know, I have no idea. I'm saying I'll say three or 4,000, and uh, I don't know how they, how they get split out. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Used to be that there was kind of like the radio hall and there was the broadcasters hall and then those digital rebels came into the South Hall and all the kind of computer people and Apple and AJ and, and Adobe were in that South Hall. I don't know how they're breaking it up, but t they tend to group like in areas, at least they have in the past. It's going to be interesting. They have the whole new building on the West Hall now that's kind of the other side of the main road that goes through between the convention center. And so they're only going to be using Central, North, and this West Hall. South Hall is going to be dark for this year. And so it'll be interesting to see what the themes in those various halls in are and what kinds of groupings of uh, exhibitors end up in which and it, it, and the one thing i will say is that these are the two the two most important uh events in our industry are probably are definitely nab and ibc and and they're not the same you know that what's really interesting is is that in addition to ibc being almost impossible to figure out where you are because the are the rye the rye is just <laughs> insane anyway so i like but but the uh but it is the the I, IBC has a whole group of event. I'd say thirty percent of the vendors in IBC are different. Maybe thirty, even up to fifty percent, are different in IBC than they are at NAB. I, I used to think that I could go to NAB and not have to go to IBC, but IBC has this whole other world of of European, smaller European manufacturers doing specific things that just can't afford to come to Vegas. And so they're both. That's why we're always going to cover those those ones. I mean, we're going to always try anyway to cover both of those in 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 heavy at a heavy level is because they're really important. But I think globally NAB becomes the thing that a lot of the press wraps around. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Now, next question. Next question comes to us from Dave Trotman, Edmonton. Again, is there any need to keep an ambient mic oriented in the same direction and not turn it around a lot? Well, we're going to try with the Ambio to get the ambient. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, and we'll see whether it works or not. But yeah, we probably don't want to turn it at all. Like, so we want to get it up there when we start streaming, keep it in the same orientation. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, wonders what it takes to become an NAB member. Money. Not that much money. <laughs> Just money. Like, but there's a subscription. I don't know how much it is, but it's you pay. You can pay to be an NAB member, and then you're an NAB member. Um, there's probably bigger sponsorships and so on and so forth, but it's money. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace says, can you believe NAB is 100 years old? Uh, I didn't know that. For some reason, I thought it was like 80 years old. So it's it's 20 years older than I thought it was. Go ahead, Bill. No, and occasionally in NAB's past, they've had uh, some of the old timers bring in like old Plumicon cameras, the big we NBC. Are, okay, I can promise you one stream we're going to do 
that I don't know where they're going to be, but usually between the central and the south and the north hall, there is a guy that has, or a, it's not a guy, it's a museum, but there's a broadcast museum that has a display of of things that that's usually in between. It's kind of down the hall from the the food court. And I always go over and just look at the stuff. I have yeah. this thing that I really want to collect those. And I'm like, I really don't have anywhere to put this stuff. So I'm not going to start collecting old broadcast things, but I love looking at them. I, I just, there's something about it that's organic. That's, uh, you know, I just lo- I love it. So we're definitely doing, <laughs> there'll be at least one segment from there of just looking at this stuff because it's just amazing. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's a, a, a Simpty, I think in Cincinnati, one of the regional Simpties. Uh, that puts on that exhibit every year, and it's always interesting. And and they're looking, they're trying to do a live stream, but they called me to see about getting a, uh, if I had any connections with Simpty Hollywood to get them a live stream. And Simpty International does have a booth, and they are going to be doing some live streams from there. So I hope I put them in touch with them, so hopefully they'll be able to steal some bandwidth because well, they couldn't afford the $6,000 a day for a, a Wi-Fi. I can't, do it. I can't do it all day, but... An yeah. hour, like I think that our team could go over there for an hour on Thursday or Wednesday or whatever and just talk to them. I mean, it'd be really fun. Like I, okay. like his, the history of broadcast. And, and I admit that I, my grandfather um, uh, picked up, um, my, my grandfather built a crystal radio set and picked up the first commercial broadcast from KDKA in Pittsburgh, you know, that, that had an antenna out of Saxonburg, <laughs> Saxonburg PA. And, uh, and so, and he talked about it all the time. So I, I, uh, I, I grew up with all that broad, you know, he's building his own Heath kit transmitters and, you know, everything else. And so I, I grew up in the middle of all of that and seeing all of those pieces laying around and, and playing with those things, not mostly ham, not, not broadcast. But then I got the first radio station I worked at was, I don't think they, I think that the, yeah, I don't think they updated anything since the 1950s, maybe, you know, like the mid 50s or early 60s. There was, I can't remember what the, the board was, but it was, it was old. It's in Monroeville. And um, anyway, so, uh, so I, I don't know, I, I love, and I had to take that board apart, put it back together because it was making a lot of noise and I couldn't take it. And so, um, uh, and, and I, I just, uh, it's one of my favorite things. And so we, we should, uh, not only should we cover them at NAB, we should figure out how we get to Cincinnati um, and go to the, just do a live stream from the, from the museum. That's all I'm saying. Dennis is not that far away. That's all I'm saying. He's, he's close. So um, I know we have some other good friends in Cincinnati. So, so we'll, um, uh, so let's, let's, let's take that into account. All right. That was a fun, that was a fun hour. I, I thought for sure that hour is going to last like 10 minutes. Cause I, I was like, I don't have all the answers yet. <laughs> I'm still working on them. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so the, uh, the uh, so that's good. Uh, thanks, thanks so much to the, for the producers for saving us with great questions and keeping the conversation going and uh, just just uh, keeping it all going. It's going to be a really interesting week next week. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, and uh, and thanks to the panelists. It's great to see everybody here. Um, we're starting to get. It's good to see Dennis here. Dennis, it's good to have you have you on the show more often. So um, we're glad to have you here. And it's good to see everybody here. But Dennis is new, so he's he. Um, and uh, so so we're 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 glad to have you. And, uh, but really, uh, thanks to the panel for, for all your contribution and, uh, and thanks to the incredible team that makes this happen and the incredible team coming together for NAB next week. Holy smokes, 50 people, 10 countries. It's going to be great. So, um, so anyway, so thank, thank you all. And, uh, we are now going to talk about the Tlaloc traversal. I almost went into the end, but 92,000 miles, 148,000 kilometers, 729 million 
bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Yes, Bitcoin to seventy for forty-five years. I mean, NAB, NAB. Do they have great chili in Cincinnati? Yeah. Sounds like he's in surround. 